Thank you. Uh, good evening. So this is the November 3rd, uh, 2022 meeting of the Historical Advisory Board. And we will begin with roll call. Okay. Take the roll call. Uh, Chair Saxby, or um, Chair Sanchez, sorry. As, Recording uh, in progress. Quick, uh, summary about yourselves and um, yeah. Uh, who wants to go first? Megan, would you like to start us off? Sure. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Megan Borthwick. Um, I've lived in Alameda for a couple years now. I'm an architectural historian. I currently work with the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Um, I got my master's from University of Oregon um, and I'm happy to be on the board. So thank you all. Thank you. Uh, my name is Hank Hernandez. Nice to meet you all. I've been an Alameda resident since 2001. Uh, first moved here from Florida. Uh, I always liked the palm trees and the beaches, so it reminded me of home. Where else to live in the Bay Area besides here? Um, uh, currently, I work uh, in a company called Alameda Tiny Homes. We're an ADU builder, a design build firm, specifically building cottages here in Alameda. Um, I have a couple of kids, uh, I have a dog, uh, I go boating, um, generally enjoy the island life and try never to leave unless I absolutely have to. Um, I uh, very much enjoy the historical architecture, the historical homes in Alameda. I own one myself, which I've slaved over since 2009 when we bought it. <laughs> Still many, many projects to come. And I've uh, had projects that have come before uh, historical advisory board for approval. So I, uh, I get it from the other side as well. But very happy to be here and contribute any way I can. And okay. uh, well, thank you both and welcome. Um, it's wonderful to have you on board and uh, we all look forward to working with you in the coming year. Uh, I think you'll both make a wonderful addition to our little group here. So thank you so much. Um, okay. Uh, should we move on to item number three, uh, meeting minutes? Uh, so we have um, draft meeting minutes from our September 1st, uh, 2022. Are there any uh, comments or corrections regarding the minutes? I had a correction, I think. Um, sure. Sorry, I have a lot of windows open today. <laughs> but um, Let's see. I think it's like just at the very last statement about um, when um, you uh, board member, it's like right before item eight, it's like board member Sanchez nominated vice chair Jones to remain vice chair, but it wouldn't be that I was remaining to be vice chair because I was just nominated. So okay. it's just a little... Um, correction there. Okay, great, we got that. Okay. 
I think you're muted, Norm. Oh, excuse me. Thank you. Uh, do we have a motion to approve the meeting minutes with the correction uh, board member Jones uh, commented on? I'll make a motion okay. to approve the meeting minutes. I'll second that. Okay, we have a motion and a second. All in favor, say aye. 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 All opposed. Okay, uh, meetings, meeting minutes approved. Um, moving on to item number four, agenda changes and discussions. Do we have any adjustments to our agenda? Uh, I don't think we have any um, adjustments. Okay, very good. Uh, so then moving on to item number five, uh, oral communications. So this is the um, opportunity for members of the public uh, or the board to speak on any items that are not on this evening's agenda. Do we have any speakers? Currently, no one's raising their hand. Okay. Um, anybody from the board have any um, oral communications outside of the agenda items then? Okay. Very good. So we'll move on to written communications, item number 6A. Um, so on that one, Alan, uh, we did all receive the um, the Alameda Preservation Society newsletter as part of our packet. Do we? Um, is there any action we need to take on that item? No, this is just uh, we're passing on written communication from the public to the board. Okay, very good. For your information. Cool. Um, yeah, so for our new members, uh, typically those communications come in our email with the agenda and they have links. So if you ever have um, any trouble, um, locating any of the documentation, let us know, um, and they'll help us dig it out. Um, thankfully, we're not printing out all our packets anymore. So instead of receiving a big, thick envelope every month, we're able to uh, print only the items we want. So that's great. Okay. Uh, Chair Sanchez, if I may just um, add on to that, um, just for sure. any member of the public who, who may be interested in passing correspondence to the board, um, we have to save paper, we have moved to all electronic. So um, if we would prefer any written material um, electronically, just email it to us. Don't worry about um, printing multiple copies. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. So we are on to um, our first regular agenda item 7A. Uh, public workshop to review and comment on the draft development plan for the West Midway um reshap project at alameda point um we have a presentation scheduled correct uh, yes uh chair sanchez um good evening uh sir, chair sanchez members of the historical advisory board alan time the city planner and also welcome uh, our new board members um borfwick and hernandez to the board um so i'll, I'll briefly give a uh quick summary and then i would also uh if we can in, uh, promote uh, Sean Wiskman from Catellas, as well as I believe Josh Roden, who is also in the attendees list tonight. Um, so the item before you is a study session on the proposed West Midway reshape development project at Alameda Point. Um, the, the project site, as described in the staff report, encompasses over 40 acres of land between Pan Am Way and Main Street, and it's immediately north of Site A. Um, 
I will let the developer team um, joining me tonight is Sean Wisman and uh, I don't if Josh Roden as well from the development team and I will let them present the uh, project details briefly after I complete my comments. Um, so consistent with past practice, uh, staff is presenting uh, this project for the HAB uh, for an opportunity to review and comment on major development proposals that occur uh, near historic resources or within a historic district. And in this particular, particular case, uh, the project site is adjacent to the NAS Alameda National Register Historic District. Now, I want to be very clear, while there are no designated historic buildings on the project site, um, the site does include Building 78, which is formerly the barracks for the uh, Women's Naval Reserve, or known as the WAVES. And while the WAVES barracks itself has been determined by past preservation experts to not be a historic building and it's not part of the NAS Alameda Historic District, staff believes this is really a good opportunity for the project to commemorate the extraordinary contributions of women in the military during World War II. And so with that, um, staff believes the project should implement some measures for the building as if uh, it were a historic resource. And so these measures that um, staff is seeking the board's input on tonight uh, could include things like maybe incorporating some of the um, architectural features of the existing building into a replacement building that's um, on or near the, the site, uh, as well as perhaps photo documentation of the existing building, um, developing an interpretive signage program and or including public guard. Some of the measures that um, the board has required for other projects um, involving historic resources. So um, at this time, the project is still under review by staff and we're working with the developer to refine the project details and it will still require planning board and council approval at a later date. But um, tonight we are looking for your input on um, the matters as I have described. And so with that, I can turn it over to Sean um, and Josh to kind of go over uh, just a summary of the project. Thank you. Great, th thanks, Alan. Um, so, so good evening, uh, Chair Sanchez and members of the board. M my name is Sean Wiskeman with Catellus. Um, and joining me, um, uh, one of the Hollywood Squares here is, jo is Josh Roden uh, of Brookfield. And um, Catellus and, and Brookfield uh, have, has formed a joint venture to develop um, the, the market rate component of the West Midway project. The West Midway project's 34 total acres about a little over nine of it um, is um, it will, will be the reshape partial, uh, the reshape, pro reshape project, which is 309 mark, uh, um, units for uh, low and very low affordable units, 200 of which are replacement units uh, for existing housing that's already out there, uh, and 109 of it will be new units. Um, so that's a, um, a pretty, um, it's, it's, a, it's a really, important priority project for the city. For us, um, our role as the joint venture is to develop all of the infrastructure and develop the, the sites for, for mid-pin housing uh, to construct um, the affordable housing on behalf of the, the collaborating partners that, that make up the Reshape Partnership. Um, so with that, maybe I'll just pull up a couple images. I know we have limited time, um, so, uh, but just to give you an orientation, um, and, uh, and Josh, feel free to, to jump in here too, but just to, to give you a just sort of sense of where the West, Mid West Midway project is. Um, so the 34 acres is really surrounded by this, this black dash line. Uh, so this is Main Street. 
um, West Tower Almanac Brewery, which a lot of people know about, is number five right there. And then West Midway Avenue um, to the north in Pan Am um, to the west. Um, so this is the development parcel that we have. Um, uh, good to, um, you know, I wanted to kind of show you too that the Waves building that we're talking about, or Alan mentioned, is, is number four um, on, this, on this image. And it corresponds to um, this image over here. Um, it says it's referenced as building eight, but that is essentially, that's the Waves building. Um, building 35 um, is, uh, has been referenced in the documents. It is outside of the project and it's here in number one. Uh, and that's the, uh, the preschool that's up and operational right now. Um, so this, this makes up the, the development site. Um, I'm going to flip down here a couple pages. So, um, so this is the development plan. It's changed a little bit from what you see here, but for purposes of this discussion, we just wanted to, um, you know, kind of use it to talk through it. Um, so the, the developer units, there's 480 units um, that, that sit um, on our site, uh, which is about 23 acres. Um, and it's everything um, excluding this, I don't know if you can see the cursor, but, but uh, there's, a, there's a, about a nine acre site here, which is the reshape parcel. This will be a little bit better labeled on our, our revised plan. But this is the reshape parcel, everything else that's gonna be developed by Midpen Housing, everything else is the, um, is the market rate site, which will be the, the 400 units. Um, so, uh, you know, I, th I don't know, Josh, you wanna you know, chime in with, with any further comments? Um, uh, Brookfield uh, will be the residential developer here, which is really exciting. It's one of the nation's best home builders. So happy to have them as our partner. Thanks, Sean. Um, no, we're just glad to be part of the project and out here at Alameda Point. And, um, you know, fortunately there are um, a lot of historic buildings in the in the area. And, and I think it's great that um, we could acknowledge one of the ones that's not maybe registered as high up, but um, could be something that we could um, highlight at least in the project somewhere. But no, I don't have anything else to comment yeah. on at this point. This, this project's critically important um, for for the reach for the city um, you know, because of of, of um, you know the the three hundred nine units that will be built as part of the parcel. So. Um, they would normally have been here, uh, but Doug Biggs uh, from the Alameda Point Collaborative um, uh, is traveling, and, and uh, but certainly, um, you, you know, we are closely aligned with them, and, and they wanted um, um, to mention, as we wanted to support also what Alan said about commemorating the Waves building um, in a way that, you know, could be um, documentation plus, uh, you know, public art or something like that. We, we, we recognize that that is, and that's um, appropriate, and, and we'd like to um, explore ways to do that here. So with that, Ellen, I think, I think we're, we're, we're good and we're available, obviously, for any questions. Yes, thank you. Okay. Um, do we have any questions from the board for the applicants? Member Saxby? Hi, uh, thank you for the presentation. Um, so I just, I'm trying to understand a little bit about the context of the project. And I know we have some existing uh, like officer housing that's to the north of this site. And is that is that area also being proposed for housing development or is that gonna be uh, preserved in some way? That's a, I guess that's a question for staff. 
Yeah, actually, um, if we wouldn't mind put, pulling back that site plan, Sean, did you if you had it? Yeah, yeah uh, no problem. I mean, to the to the south is all the new housing that's been developed just recently, right? And so we're yeah, looking let, at. Okay, go ahead. Let me um, let me find. What might be helpful? Um, the, this this image down on on the right side here. Um, it's a little complicated, but the um, our parcel, um, you know, kind of stops here at West Midway, and then you know there's there's future development of of Alameda Point to the north of West Midway. And I believe that's where the, the housing that you're referring to, um, and that would just would be, a, I'm assuming a, line, a future a future development site and a future date. So the, the line of buildings there that's to the left or the west side of the central gardens, is that the existing housing that's there on the base now? Or is that new new proposed housing? Yeah, this is just part of the Main Street specific plan. It's, um, you know, the existing housing, um, you know, it's this kind of, you, you can see, I can't, I can't remember what they refer to, for along Corpus Christi, Alan, maybe you know, but you see these. these yeah, that's not part of the, the project site today. I understand. I'm just trying to get a context of, of what we're building, what we're planning in the future and how it might impact this particular project. I think the, vis the vision, and I don't want to speak for Alan again, was just to sort of continue to the north with um, um, housing um, and, and maybe some some additional commercial, but largely housing to the north and in various densities. So, so more yeah. of the same kind of development. So that the officers' housing gets torn down. That's there now. Uh, there is no so so. Uh, what's what you see on the screen, um, Member Saxby, is uh, the Main Street neighborhood plan, which has already been adopted by the city. Um, it does show. Uh, retaining some of the existing building, but you know the the part of the big picture of Alameda Point really is um, focused on infrastructure, and so um, the idea is the existing Navy inf the infrastructure that the Navy left the city is um, not serviceable, and so um, the way uh, the city is approaching the infrastructure issue is really partnering up with uh, private developers, with the city supplying the land, private developers coming in, building inf the infrastructure, and then um, branching out um, accordingly. So uh, if you look at the, you know, um, from Main Street and Site A, uh, that development occurred, that uh, Site A development provided the infrastructure, which now this project can extend into uh, North. And so I think once this project is completed and infrastructure is in, then that opens up opportunity for possibly future development um, into the what we call the, the Main Street. And that future development is guided by the uh, Main Street neighborhood plan. Um, we do not have specific pr uh, development proposals for that area at this time. Um, are there any areas uh, that are going to be preserved as part of this development? Uh, you mean within within like the, the like boundary, the big whites or? that that unusual uh, sort of lighter colored development there yeah, the, so, the, the beehive neighborhood so, right the big whites are historic I mean it's identified in the plan as being uh, preserved um, as well as I believe the uh, the um, the NCO the, quarters the, yeah I think the NCO quarters have also been identified so it's it's shown in the plan and um, around the uh, future development around central gardens area okay so. well thank you of which, that's, that's of which we have nothing to do with but you know right. i understand maybe I'm, someday in the future <laughs> yeah i would say I'm, it's speculative at this point to to really yeah. 
decide on what's going on in the northern part of the Main Street neighborhood plan. I'm just trying to understand how, uh, you know, what is proposed to be preserved is informing the design for the current project. Is there anything about the Naval Air Station and its architecture and the, the preservation of its buildings that is, that is informing the design of this particular site? In, in, the, in the style of the buildings and the height of the buildings and anything about it? Yeah, I think um, we've had a conversation with the planning board, a workshop with the planning board, and one of the uh, uh, items that staff had brought up with the planning board was really the um, street network and connectivity, um, how the how this site would uh, connect site A as well as uh, the main street neighbor to the north, as well as the east-west connectivity. And um, we we had a discussion about that. So in terms of sort of the roadway typology and connectivity that the, we, we do wanna rely on um, kind of the surroundings. And I'll, I'll let Sean and Josh maybe address sort of the, the future architecture. We haven't gotten- Yeah, I can that talk a little detail. bit about- Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the architecture. So on the residential, both on the-, the in, I'm speaking a little bit for Reshape 2 and ourselves. Um, we haven't really gotten to detail detail on actual architecture of the vertical buildings yet, but we do have some conceptual. And it is pulling from a lot of what we see at the base, which has a little bit more of a um, industrial type feel to it. So it's not so much maybe the classic um, Victorian or craftsman E type looking that you might find on other areas of the island. It is more of a, um, I don't know, it's not urban, but what, what's sort of the, the historical architecture style out there at the with the existing buildings at Alameda Point, it doesn't come to mind. Streamline modern. Yeah, so it does not, have- Not like, necessarily the housing, not all the housing, but a lot of the buildings are. Right, right, so there's, like for instance, there's more like flat top roof type buildings, um, not so much the classical housing type style, but more of that institutional, I guess, maybe looking. Um, but yes, it is playing off of more of what is Alameda Point like in general and not necessarily um, the Great Whites by any means, but pulling more from like what is down across to the east or excuse me west of pan am by almanac um so you can see down in our corner we have a commercial corner down there so that we have some imagery some ideas already that we've been toying around with that that does look like and plays off of the almanac um building and, and what those look like over there so more of a industrial type feel but not new industrial more of that older style looking yeah i I appreciate that. I, I think that's the way to go with this project. I, you know, you look to the east, the 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 residential housing that's that was built there, is is much more of a sort of suburban architectural style, and I think yeah, know, we, we can take port. advantage and relate much more to the to the naval air station in this particular site. Yep, certainly, definitely. Um, this may be a little bit out of our purview. Um, as with the historical historical advisory board, but um, I just noticed there there wasn't a lot of parking. Is is there any parking proposed other than the street parking? Uh, this we're actually complying with the city has a, a relatively newer ordinance on um, a maximum parking 
um, allowed. So we're working within those confines to actually limit the amount of parking. Okay. Um, so we're sort of constrained on how much parking we can actually provide. Well, just out of curiosity, how much the is units, it for the um, 780 it, units? Yeah, each of the units, there, there is parking within each unit. Oh, there um, is. It, it varies sing, single car, maybe some some single, some some tandem, some, you know, so, so it does vary. Uh, plus there is some street parking, but it, but it is, we are limited by the, by the cap. Okay. Well, it's good to hear there is parking with the different yeah. units. And then, um, sorry, I'm taking up a lot of time here. I just had a couple no, more questions. Um, so the, uh, there's a small sort of community uh, a gathering zone that's proposed um, kind of in the middle of your site. Yeah, right there. It's just for this is a this is a what we believe is a is a major improvement from this this particular plan. Um, so I'm just for convenience I pulled up the one the previous one, but but there's a this has really moved to kind of this area, so it's accessible from right off of Orion. Uh, but yes, it's sort of this this function has sort of mo has moved to Orion and is much more sort of open to the public. It was already open to the public, but it's now it's more accessible to the public. Yeah, I would, you know, that's I, my comment was going to be that would be nice to be more inclusive. It seems like it's kind of in this particular design, it's sort of hidden away and and sort of fronted on by just a, a small number of units. So bringing it to the public street yeah. and, and making it possibly more expansive, I think would be really nice because there's a lot of housing here and not much um, sort yeah. of gathering space for the residents. We, we, yeah, we, and we did make this connection all the way through, um, which is which is an improvement. This connection has has you know is is improved, and and the open space has has opened up a little bit, um, which is nice. And and what's probably the biggest change is that this connection has now been made um, from Main Street to to Orion to reference Allen's um, earlier so comment I, activity. Sorry, I was going to ask. I I don't know if you have Exhibit Two from. Um, Exhibit two, I think, is the the plan that you're referencing, right? The the updated uh, revised site plan that shows the open space on mm. connecting Orion. That might be helpful. You're gonna you're gonna make me move fast on October. My, fast on yeah. my feet here. So I will uh, let me let me try. And yeah, was, yeah. Board member Sachs, we touched on one of the questions that I had, which was I was trying to understand the differences. Um, in the two site plans. And I think you began to kind of allude to to relocating those open spaces and sort of um, moving them around Orion, um, which I think is demonstrated in exhibit two. Yep. All right, here we go. You uh, you, you tested my, my, my Zoom skills. So let me see if I can, see if I can make it happen. Okay, is this, um, does this, is this showing up now? It is. Okay. So the so the major connection differences between the two plans and and they're sort of like so here's A, so I would focus right here, mm -hmm. um, and then right here and then right here and you'll see some of the some of the neighborhoods have changed in Exhibit Two, so the big changes are this Avenue A now connects all the way through to Orion, um, the the building the buildings have shifted um, to these these courts. Um, which is a little bit of a different configuration, but allowed us the, the real estate to, to add Avenue A. Um, here's this open space. And again, it's not super defined yet because this is, this is, we're just, it's just raw. Um, so the, the landscape architect, civil engineer, everybody's 
everybody's in, in design mode about how to, you know, for programming of these spaces, um, some of which will be active and some of which will be passive that have a, you know, sort of a, a water quality component to them. Um, this ardent way now connects all the way through where it didn't before. Um, and, and then Skylark has, you know, has been connected with a little bit more grace. Um, Skylark connects all the way down into um, side A. Um, Ardent Way connects all the way down into side A and Orion obviously does as well. Um, so, so those are the major changes. Um, the, the updated build development plan will have a lot more labeling and detail on it, but that, this, is the, this is the sort of next iteration of this plan. And again, the commercial that Josh indicated is right here on the corner. Well, I, 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 I like where this is going as far as the, the community open space um, and kind of like the, the way the, the drive, the, the, the alleys on the north side of the project towards West Midway sort of end up in a little cluster there so that you know those residents can kind of take ownership of those areas um, but um, so the, one more question and then I'll step down um, the community garden seems to have disappeared is that relocated or is that something that was just a, a thought that didn't pan out when you say the community garden do you mean and an earlier in the earlier scheme that you have exhibit one there's a community garden right, right there right there I thought it was. I thought it was a nice idea, but kind of small. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, I'm candidly, I mean, the site is is being asked to do a lot of things um, right. in terms of of the open space and in the plans. And probably worth noting too that all these all the entries into the housing units face onto the streets or these paseos, and so they're essentially alley loaded. So it's, we, we we like that in terms of sort of projecting a neighborhood feel. Um, so we're we're working really hard to get. Um, to get some of those those elements in here, and we'll, we'll just sort of see how the plan shakes out. I, it, it is worth mentioning that the that the development plan for the reshape parcel, and they have their um, they have their they have their community garden, and and um, you know it's an operating business that they're going to be moving in here, and they're going to be constructing a, a sort of essentially a barn like feature, um, and, a, and a, you know they're they're going to be it's going to be pretty interesting, and it's right uh, it's right right around in here somewhere. I don't remember where it is. I think it's this building right here. Is that the, the barn that was pictured in one of the images on the, um, yes, the material sorry, you sent to us? don't mean to give you a headache, but this one, yes. Yeah, okay. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I think sure. you're, uh, it looks like it's heading in the right direction. Great, thank you. Okay, well, we'll stop. Do, do, we... do you need this up, Alan? Do you... uh, yeah, it, it, are there any other questions from uh, board members for the applicant? Uh, yes, uh, board member Hernandez. I, I was just curious about a uh, timeline for this. I, maybe I missed it in the materials. Sorry, I'm coming you know, to my first meeting new, so I, I may have just uh, not seen this. When uh, ideally are you planning on starting the project? How long do you think the project's gonna last? And does the project have a sort of a useful lifespan projection for these buildings? Are you planning this as, you know, as a near immediate term thing or just wondering if you could speak to that? Okay, um, Josh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll start then you, you can jump in if, if you want. So so we're, we're, um, we're going through an entitlement phase now. So um, we have to get a development plan approved, a development agreement approved, a DDA approved. 
um, and all of those um, all of that, those documents will make their way through planning board and city council um, over the next. I mean, ideally, we're in, we're at city council for approval in February. Um, that's the plan. Um, you know, from there, um, you know, we we would probably be commencing our first um, sort of site improvement work. Um, you know, sometime kind of summer next year, summer fall. There's an extensive amount of, of site preparation, demolition and site preparation to get building pads ready for buildings. Um, this, this is just a, a really difficult um, dirt to work with. So we got to surcharge it and do all kinds of crazy stuff to get, um, to get it ready for construction. So th those activities would be the first to start and they would start probably late summer, early fall next year. Um, you know, and then, you know, and then we, and Josh, you want to sort of address the housing? I mean, probably are, let's see if, First phases of housing yeah. sometime in 20. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tagging on to what Sean just described, the a lot of the horizontal work would then end up happening in 2024 um, after we get a lot of the soil prep done. And ideally, um, we're, we're focused on getting reshapes first phase going um, because we're supposed to deliver to them utilities and a um, graded pad that's ready for their vertical components um, because there are existing residents that are on the overall West Midway project that are coming from Alameda Point Collaborative and Operation Dignity. Um, so we wanna get them going as soon as possible so that they can start building their uh, first two buildings that those people would then be able to move into. And that would hopefully start in 2025. Um, and then the market rate housing would be about the same time. Um, we plan on doing both improvements to um, the ground and some of the work that Sean mentioned, both in the phase one for reshape and then also, and that's on the Western side of the site. And then the Eastern side of the site, um, a phase one of the market rate. And so the timing of that for actually going vertical is, is in that 2025 um, year. Right. And the length of it would be, um, you know, who knows what the market will be doing um, during that period. But, um, you know, ideally, it's probably a, a five, six year build out. Um, and then as far as like the life um, lifespan or um, longevity, I mean, the anticipation is this is this is a permanent project um, that ideally it'll, you know, will stand the test of time and who knows how long it could could last out there. So it's not supposed to be temporary. The the only component, um, I guess that there could be a little bit of a temporary um, component to it would be the commercial corner. Um, you know, we see that as an opportunity to activate the, the community and get some, some, some fun things going out there um, and people excited about it. So we might do an initial temporary phase of that um, at some point uh, so that we could get some pop-ups or some other um, uses um, that aren't being served right now in that local area. So from either a food or other community neighborhood um, type amenities. So that could be a temporary use for a, a little while and then turn into a, a permanent one at some point. Okay, super. Um, thank you for that. As a follow-up question, I was also curious because I, I think some of this site is in the FEMA flood area, if I'm correct, just thinking about those maps what what are you how are you dealing with that you know in relationship to the permanence of the site i know there's a lot of that's going going into the prep yeah. but how does that factor in 
So Sean had described um, some of the, the site improvement work that we have to do is surcharging. So um, we'll be importing, um, gosh, I don't know if it's like 200,000 yards or something like that. Um, and so wherever we have building pad areas, we'll be surcharging anywhere from six to 10 feet of soil. And so we do need to bring up the elevation of the site in some areas, um, specifically to what you're, you're talking about. And so fortunately we'll have some, some soil out there already for, for that. And so we will be able to elevate the pads um, to get to the point where we need to for, uh, um, to satisfy the FEMA. And then the project will also, uh, the future residents will be uh, paying into a community facilities district. And most likely there will be a component of that that will be a long-term maintenance and reserve fund for sea level rise. So Alameda Point in general has, if you look at some of the master plan, master infrastructure planning, there's a um, sea level rise um, program to mitigate that as different developments are happening around the point. They're, they actually then elevate even higher to create almost like a a levy that you don't really see, but is, is there. So I, I guess Alan probably knows a little bit more about it, but the work that the site A group has been doing um, and some of the new infrastructure and the park area that they did around the lagoon. Mm -hmm. So some of that's designed for, to help mitigate sea level rise as well. So. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm also curious because obviously there's existing buildings that are out there that we're not touching and how you're managing the elevation changes, which, you know, 10 feet in Alameda, is, that's a big elevation change. Uh, yeah. It's like, what, Willow at the hospital is probably the biggest hill, you know, when you're coming down towards the beach. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Yeah, West, West Mid, the West Midway project's one of the higher, higher points out there, interestingly enough. So, well, we have work to do. Um, it's not quite as bad as other parts on, on Alameda Landing. And, you know, obviously, it's a, you know, it's a heavy lift for the civil folks to make sure street grades are working and entries are working. And, and, um, and so that's been a big part of their effort so far. And, and uh, so for sure. Thank you. Great. Uh, and does anybody else have questions? Uh, Board Member Jones. Sorry, sometimes I have like so many things on my window. Um, uh, my question was about that waves building. Um, what, well, number one, it's not technically on the historical register, but thank you for seeing its value. I just passed by it today, actually. Um, and I think it's just a beautiful um, building. And so have we talked about, is it too early in the stage to talk about how to commemorate this building or have there been talks about what, what um, you guys might actually do to um, commemorate it, save it, restore it? how how, how uh, it might be used down the line in the future. Yeah, Board Member Jones, why don't I um, respond to your question first and now I'll let Sean or Josh jump in. Um, so there's been extensive study at Alameda Point, um, really starting from the 90s as, as soon as the uh, federal government has decided to um, decommission use of the base, there's been multiple studies and all of the studies on the particular building had really concluded that the structure itself was really just a typical um, barrack structure, but what's important really is um, sort of the contributions of 
of uh, its its former users. And there, I believe the original building was not built for uh, the women's reserve. It was really a temporary barracks. And and um, I think it's also important to understand that a lot of the buildings at Alameda Point um, were constructed for the for war effort and um, were often really designed for temporary use. And some that you know within the Navy program were also slated for demolition um, by the Navy themselves. So um, you know the, the building today is really I would say dilapidated, um, but we do recognize that there is value in commemorating the waves, as I stated earlier. And there are many ways to do that. You know that could be um, we could follow uh, um, examples of new development in Alameda commemorating historic buildings. You know. Maybe a, maybe a replacement building that picks up on its general form, roof shape, features, um, and things of that nature. Um, but, but we're not. But the plan is not to save the building. I think that okay. might that might be a foregone conclusion. <laughs> All right. Um, it just it's so beautiful. I think, but you know, it's all subjective. Um, I'm glad you made those points, Alan. To um, just you know, further educate myself and the public as far as the actual state of the building. Um, I think um, it'd be prudent for us to take mitigating fact, you know, um, like sort of like um, to be able to document and not, I know that there were temporary structures, but there's beauty to it um, in my personal opinion. And I feel like even though they were made for temporary use, um, it's a part of our history that we really shouldn't um, forget. And there's something kind of magical about like the actual wood that was used on this building. So yeah, I hope some artist or someone picks this up and uses the materials maybe, but also I would love um, for there to be um, a, a good amount of documentation um, <clears throat> so that, yeah, um, further, you know, architectural, um, you know, new builds can be inspired by this and also for the historical purposes that we can. Anyway, I'm starting to comment, so I'll, I'll stop there, but that was my question for that. Um, and yeah, everything else uh, I have are mostly comments, so I'll just save my response for, for later. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think uh, if there aren't any other questions, my only question was kind of following up on Vice Chair Jones's uh, uh, comments where do you, you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation that you do have a commitment to sort of uh, celebrating the, the waves. And so I, I just wondered if you have a plan in place or have discussed at all any, um, any plan for how to, how to document uh, that history and, and how to potentially display it and share it with the public. From a from a development perspective, uh, from between Brookfield and Catellus, we, we've we have we haven't gotten into any level of detail. Um, simply just you know wanted to sort of note the history and the, the of it, and, um, and and we'll just continue to um, you know kind of work on it as we move through design. Uh, we're, we're at just a you know kind of a development plan level phase here, so this isn't. That those are details that we will certainly get into, but but uh, at this point we ha we haven't gotten into much detail. Chair Sanchez, if I may, um, just as Sean described, um, we're this is sort of the uh, early in the um, review process. Um, sure. we, we staff and the developer has identified this opportunity, 
And so we wanted to really just bring this to the board and get your input on and, and direction on how to move forward. And we have some preliminary ideas, but really looking for this board for, um, for guidance on next steps. Okay, okay fair enough. Um, so in that case, um, do we have, uh, do we have any uh, public comments? Um, anybody waiting from the public to comment? Yes, currently uh, there's one person raising their hand. That's Christopher Buckley. Okay, go ahead. Christopher Buckley, I'm with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society, but I'm not speaking for the national uh, for the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society on this. Um, AAPS would normally have weighed in on this and. To be quite honest, we've been so preoccupied with the housing element, um, this slipped through the cracks. And uh, I only noticed it when I was doing a final review of the agenda before the meeting. The, in the Waves Barracks arguably is an integral part of the historical ensemble of Alameda Point since the Waves unit you know, was part really of the you know, family, an important part of the family you know, of of naval units, personnel units that was there in World War II and performed an important function in World War II. And the building itself commemorates that. And we would urge that consideration be given to try to retain the building and incorporate it into the overall plan. It's very unfortunate that the building is in its current condition. Uh, we, for years, we were uh, badgering the city to try to better maintain these Alameda Point buildings. Quite honestly, we gave up. It was like beating our head against the wall. The other build, a lot of the other buildings have not been well maintained either. But this one, because it's wood frame, is especially vulnerable. So, you know, we would like to push the idea of trying to retain it within the project. We do appreciate staff's effort to call it to everybody's attention, bring this whole pr project to the uh, board at an early stage, so that uh, you know, board input put can be recorded and seriously considered as part of the project. So those are just my comments. I'd be pretty confident that AAPS as an organization would support looking for ways to try to retain the building itself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do we have uh, any other public speakers? No one else is raising their hand at this time. Okay. Um, so in that case, uh, why don't I uh, ask board members if they have any additional comments that they would like to share uh, before we close this agenda item? Uh, oh, Chair Sanchez, I have a, a, a comment, a question more for staff. Um, thinking through if there's gonna be like mitigation or or something to commemorate this building does the city have like an interpretive plan for the naval base as a whole so that any type of mitigation or interpretation of sites that get taken down as as development happens so that mitigation or that interpretation is consistent throughout uh yes so um there uh there is a plan in place um because you know, when we when we first developed the plan for basically converting the base to civilian use, there is anticipation that some of the existing buildings would have to make way for new development. And so as part of that, there are um, what we call mitigation measures, environmental mitigation measures that 
do anticipate some of the historic buildings having to be demolished. And what do we do in order to document and kind of commemorate its past existence? So many of the suggestions that were uh, raised in the staff report, um, such as incorporating uh, you know, um, I think former Jones used the word inspire, right? I think that's very key, you know, um, looking for ways to uh, use existing architecture to inspire new architecture designs. Um, specifically, you know, um, documentation according to established preservation standards. Um, we, the city has used uh, a professional hist historical uh, photographer to document um, buildings that were um, demolished. Um, that's one of them, developing an interpretive signage program, um, and as well as including um, public art. And you, you see examples of that already in, um, for example, the um, uh, Seaplane Lagoon Park, uh, um, sort of the, uh, there's a timeline that's um, engraved into the, the pavement. I mean, that's one way of um, um, kind of storytelling. Um, for for kind of the history there, and then of course um, the use of public guard. Um, one other uh, sort of a, a a new measure that's being proposed by staff today is just one retaining the existing street names where possible, and also using new street name street names um, to commemorate the history. And so those are all um, measures that have been identified in the past. Thank you. Okay. Um, did anybody else have comments? Uh, Vice Chair Jones, you mentioned you had a few additional comments. Sure. Um, well, number one, I just want to thank the, the developers because, um, you know, our city, it's, we can't, you know, be a city that we can be proud of and have the infrastructure without you guys. And, um, and I feel like it's always this um, balance of pre preservation and, um, you know, really um, being careful with what we have here in the city, but yet um, developing it in a way that more people can enjoy it, that we create more equitable housing and, um, you know, sort of meet the demands of our growing population. So um, I just want to thank you guys for undertaking this really massive uh, project. And I think that, uh, you know, obviously Alameda is such a special city and uh, it has um, these, you know, architecture that just doesn't, the, the amount of beautiful architecture that we have in our small island is, is just, um, you know, I bet per capita, it's just like mind blowing. It's, it's so different than any other city. Um, and I think that, um, part of preserving that feel, I, I really hope that you would look around and not just kind of put, um, you know, think about, I guess what I'm saying is I, I hope that there's a lot of development in the character of the buildings and where they're placed, because it's also about the the feel of where um, where you are in placement. And I think Tom sort of um, alluded to that when he was asking what is what are, what are the next steps, um, because if <clears throat> development continues to move forward and forward and the the sort of density of housing as as we're seeing here in this project continues throughout the whole naval base that doesn't really make sense in my opinion um there's a sort of um like expansiveness to um this part of the west side of alameda and i think that 
um, we need to be careful not to have um, such high density areas throughout the whole um, base. Um, and also um, we mentioned the streamlined modern architecture and um, with some of the, um, in the presentation, I, I felt like the architecture that could potentially be the style of the residences, um, I didn't see the relationship as much. Um, there's some curvature to Streamline Modern. Um, the scale as far as like the um, expansiveness or how long it is, um, I can sort of see it, but um, I, I would hope that there's, um, I don't know, maybe adding some curvature would help. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. Um, maybe it's a budgetary thing, um, but I, I think that would help. Is, and also the color palette, there's a lot of sort of, um, I, I don't think that exactly copying the color palette that you see around you is what I'm trying to say, but um, there's a lot of color blocking, which I see in these modern, um, development homes. And I think that we can do something maybe a little more subtle, like more tonal, um, that would make things look a little more, I don't know, um, not just different, but more indicative of where these buildings came from. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Um, looking at my notes. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately, I think that uh, all the businesses and um, the plans here are very exciting. Um, I think that um, the more businesses um, on the West End and all this new development is going to attract a lot of different people, that new ferry build, uh, the ferry terminal. I mean, it's just, it's such an exciting project. And I hope that um, there will be, um, I guess, more education as far as the history part of Alameda. And, um, and I think that that will attract people, um, if, you know, feeling more proud of their neighborhood. Um, with the history behind it, and um, hopefully it'll make it like a destination instead of just sort of like, this is not what I'm saying you're doing, but just kind of like plopping buildings and getting more people here. You know, I, I think that the the thought you put into this, all the businesses that are all already kind of like um, uh, planned to be involved, it's just very exciting. So those are my comments for you. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Uh, any other uh, board member comments? Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, board member Saxby. Um, yeah, I think I, I made most of my comments during the questioning session. So sorry for jumping ahead there. But, uh, you know, I, I do agree with what uh, board member Jones was just saying that I, a lot of the images that you included in the presentation are, are sort of cookie cutter uh, multifamily housing projects. And I understand that you haven't designed anything yet. So that's what you had to work with. But, um, you know, I think that this project could be uh, unique and, and its architecture could be informed by what's around it. The, the Naval Air Station, the formality, the streamlined modern, the um, sort of the industrial qualities of the base. Uh, all those things could make for a really interesting uh, housing design. And it wouldn't just be like everything else you see everywhere you turn. So, uh, you know, I would hope that we could 
let the site sort of dictate some of the design features. And, um, and uh, if we do, I think we'll have a really successful housing project. Thank you. Um, yeah, I would agree as well. I'll, I'll just add to that. I think the, um, you know, coming in at the early stages of the development presents a ton of challenges because you, you're being asked to remove a lot of the obstacles that those that follow behind you will, will benefit from. Um, and so I guess we're adding to your, to your list of challenges, um, the request that you not forget about the history of this site and that there are many of us who are residents of Alameda who remember the commissary when it was still open and had friends and, um, you know, uh, people whose family was, were, uh, you know, shopped there and, and used the base and lived on it. And so um, while that history now seems like it's far, uh, you know, far behind us, it's really quite recent. So um, yeah, I guess that's an added challenge for you to uh, to also pave the way and lead the way in terms of um, looking at sort of sensitively trying to document and preserve that that bit of history that um, that is part of that site and um, and leading the way, I guess, for those who follow you to to do the same. So uh, we hope that you'll be as mindful of that as you as you have been so far with the other aspects of of this challenging project. Okay, so um, if we, does anybody else have any comments? Okay, so if I understand correctly, Alan, we do not have, uh, this isn't an item that we need to take action on, is that correct? Correct, we're really just looking for your direction on the staff suggestions, and then we're also, what I'm hearing is that you concur with the staff suggestions about commemorating the waves, and, um, and right, and then also um, in terms of, uh, new architecture for for the site, really trying to uh, let it be informed by the architecture around the base um, as we see it. Agreed. Okay. okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Oh, yes, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Board Member Hernandez. I would just echo uh, Board Member Jones' uh, sentiment. It, it uh, rang true with me that one of the unique uh, aspects of that, especially that area, of the base is the openness, the view corridors, the sense of sky and distance and space. And I know that's like in total opposition to building a whole bunch of new stuff right there. And uh, it doesn't mean it's not something to strive for when thinking about view corridors and you know how you can give people a sense of space. It's, it's such an amazing thing to be there and, see these buildings and have this open sense that you just don't get anywhere else in the Bay Area uh, like you do on the Navy base. So uh, I have no solution to it, but I would just echo that sentiment. It's important. Thank you. Okay, um, any other comments? All right, well, I think we'll um, Go ahead then and move on to our next agenda item. Thank you, gentlemen, for your presentation. And uh, we look forward to seeing a successful project from you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, so moving on to agenda item 7B, um, a public workshop to review and comment on a draft resolution containing findings of local climatic, geological, topographical, and environmental conditions as required to adopt Alameda local amendments to the 2019 California Energy Code. 
And number two, a draft ordinance amending the Alameda Municipal Code by amending one, Article One of the Uniform Codes Relating to Building, Housing, and Technical Codes of Chapter 13, Building and Housing, to adopt Alameda Local Amendments to the 2022 edition of the California Green Building Standards Code to require newly constructed buildings to be all electric. And I believe we have a presentation as well. Yes, uh, Chair Sanchez, I would like to introduce to the board uh, Danielle Miller, uh, City's um, Sustainability and Resiliency Manager. Um, she'll have a presentation for you. Danielle. Okay, thank you. Good evening. Thank you. Let me just pull this presentation up. You all see that okay? Um, yes. Great. Good evening. Um, so, I apologize for the very lengthy uh, topic title agenda item tonight, um, but I'm here to present um, the proposed update on our city's all electric new construction and substantial alteration ordinance for you tonight. Um, just as a little bit of background, in 2021, um, a city ordinance was passed that required all new construction in Alameda to be all electric with no gas hookups. And this built on a previous um, resolution that's uh, sought to, um, that strove to have all electric construction on city owned properties. And so in 2021, we expanded it citywide. Um, we are now proposing to update and modify that all electric ordinance. Um, we are re really required to because the 2022 California Building Standards Code is going to be adopted and we have to maintain consistency um, with that building code. We're also, as we mentioned, proposing to, to modify it um, in, to focus on substantial renovations. Um, this ordinance really fulfills a key um, priority in our climate action and resiliency plan, um, which specifically focusing on fuel switching and existing buildings and electrification of new construction, two strategies in the plan. And just as a quick overview, if you are not uh, maybe familiar with CARP, the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan, um, this was adopted in 2019, and it provides a framework for the city's climate and resilience actions um, and how we're going to contribute to both slowing climate change and adapting to its effects. The goals of CARP are to reduce emissions, greenhouse gas emissions by 50% below 2005 levels by 2030, um, and to prepare for the impacts of, uh, sorry, and to become, achieve net zero emissions as soon as possible, as well as I mentioned, um, preparing to adapt to the impacts of flooding and sea level rise, groundwater rise, drought, and other hazards that we face that are exacerbated by climate change. Um, so when we look at Alameda's emissions that were um, accounted for in CARP, um, Alameda Municipal Power began providing 100% clean energy to all Alameda customers in 2020, which was really a hugely important step because it's the foundation for clean and healthy buildings and transportation. And so following that action, um, the remaining emissions citywide are primarily 70% from transportation and 27% from um, essentially burning natural gas um, in buildings. And then there's a small remainder, remainder for water, wastewater, and waste. 
And so our focus today is on uh, building, building related emissions. Um, however, I'm sure you're aware that Alameda is also working on addressing the transportation related emissions in a number of other ways. Um, so we have drafted a um, equitable building decarbonization plan that um, was recommended for council approval by the planning board earlier this year, which um, lays out a process for shifting natural gas use in buildings toward clean, energy efficient, all electric buildings, um, and ensures that decarbonization plans do not have disproportionate effects on lower income and, pop and communities of color. Um, and it includes energy efficiency measures as well as electrification measures or switching um, gas powered appliances to electric ones. Um, before I dive into the specifics of the, the ordinance, I just wanted to point out what a big year 2022 has been for building decarbonization. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act presents, represents the largest clean energy investment that America has ever made and will provide up to $14,000 in incentives for every household to electrify the appliances they rely on, putting the U.S. on track to achieve its 40% emission reductions by 2030 goal. And then in California, Tech Clean California um, received an additional $145 million over the next two years to continue a statewide initiative aimed at accelerating the adoption of clean space and water heating technology in California. Um, and this investment per capita is even larger than the Inflation Reduction Act. And then finally, and I think really importantly, um, the California Air Resources Board has um, banned the sale of all new natural gas fired space heaters and water heating appliances um, by 2030. And this rule is really targeted at helping to comply with federal air quality standards. So we now know that after 2030, um, new space heating and water heating appliances uh, will have to be all electric. And that really lines up with our city goals very nicely. So. Um, the specifics of the ordinance are that um, essentially all new construction would be required to be all electric, no natural gas plumbing or propane plumbing um, with the use of electric appliances for space, water heating, clothes drying, and cooking. And this item is unchanged from 2021. Um, in the, in looking at our 2022 ordinance, staff is proposing um, that when an, an owner is replacing or adding over 50% of the existing foundations for purposes other than a repair or reinforcement, or where over 50% of the existing building footprint is being remodeled, including unfinished spaces, um, that you would also be required to convert to all electric. And this was really trying to um, set a threshold for what should count as essentially new construction. At some point, an existing building is undergoing so many changes that it's essentially an, a new building. Um, and I think it's an opportunity also to, um, to make this conversion that we, that we know is going to eventually be required at a time when the building is undergoing um, some construction work. Um, so the so the ordinance says that if either of the criteria are met, 
within a three-year period that it would be subject to the requirements um, that tenant only improvements are not new construction and it gives the building officials some um, some ability to make the final determination about what meets the, the definition. Um, so just you know, recapping new construction, remodeling, or adding over 50% and not tenant improvements. There's a number of exceptions that are proposed to requirements similar to what was ex, um, in the 2021 ordinance, including excuse me, commercial cooking um, appliances in non-residential buildings, um, space and water heating process equipment for laboratories, manufacturing, or R&D. So um, in those buildings, their office spaces and their general kind of space heating or water heating would be um, electric, but if they have specialized equipment that can only be gas for like research or laboratory, that that would be allowed. Um, Newly constructed buildings that have previously a, a valid uh, planning entitlement or development agreement. Um, if for the um, for the sake of a remodel, if you're doing an alteration or a remodel, and there's areas outside of the remodel area, like say in a single-family home, maybe you're um, renovating your basement, and those appliances that are in your basement that may be touched would be all electric, but you're not touching the kitchen, for example, then those appliances would not be um, required to be up to be upgraded. Um, and then there's something this, if there's no all electric prescriptive compliance pathway, which is sort of a catch all also for just if it's there's infeasibility, um, there's exception, uh, the ability to grant exceptions. Um, and then if natural gas appliances are used in any of the above exceptions, um, we would require pre-wiring and making, providing physical space for future installation. Again, thinking about the fact that we now know that these types of equipment will be required in the future. Um, so just summarizing real quick, um, not including commercial cooking appliances, not including process equipment, and um, not including existing appliances that are outside the scope of an alteration. And just for anyone who may be tracking um, the 2021 ordinance, we've moved from the energy code to, the, to Cal Green. We've added the substantial alterations and additions, updated the planning entitlement date, um, we did remove an exception for new detached ADUs in consultation with our building official um, that nearly all of the ADU permit applications are electric already. We did not feel that that was necessary to have that exception. Um, we updated a requirement for some of the, the specifics for the electric readiness requirement and also um, removed a requirement to install um, solar panels because that requirement is now included in the in the state's building code. Um, and then I just really quickly just wanted to, to point to the fact that these measures are cost effective. And this is a graph showing results of studies done on UC campuses for a number of different building types, sort of similar to what we might see in Alameda, um, and showing that for all different types of buildings, both the construction and lifetime costs of all electric buildings are less expensive or comparable to those with both gas and electricity. Um, 
And then this image very quickly is showing the cost of new construction for an all electric single family home in Alameda using AMP rates. And while we know that there's few or no single family homes being constructed in Alameda today, <clears throat> um, I think we, we think that we can make inferences from this for other building types as well as substantial remodels of an existing single family home. And you can see that in many cases, the electric alternative costs less and saves money. Um, and some, but all not, the construction costs less. And in many cases, the appliances also cost less. And when you put it all together, the overall um, cost savings is about $10,000 in upfront cost and uh, about $20 less in energy costs. Um, and so just to wrap around to the historic um, preservation link, um, historic buildings would also be required to comply with the ordinance when they're undergoing a renovation. <clears throat> Where there are conflicts, of course, the historic building code governs. Um, and just to be clear that electrification is really focusing on the mechanical system. So we do not anticipate that these upgrades would affect the building's exterior. And we do think it's important that this REACH code can help to start to prepare some of our older buildings for the state's requirement for electric appliances in 2030 when they're undergoing, um, undergoing remodels when the cost would be less and the process is a little easier. So that's all I have for you today. Um, we are just looking for your comments and feedback and um, suggestions on this draft ordinance as we're going forward. I will stop sharing my screen and happy to answer any questions that you have. Um, sorry, uh, board member Hernandez, please go ahead. Oh, I think you're muted, Hank. It's funny. I'll see you're muting and raise you. <laughs> Thank you, sorry. Um, uh, I appreciate the presentation. I did have a, a, a question about how you chose the 50% threshold of either foundation uh, or, you know, sort of building envelope area. Um, do you have any data that would sort of help us estimate how many new fixtures, like at, you know, say like the last year or two's kind of, you know, building permits, like, how effective is that going to be in, in creating the change that we're looking for? Do you, do you have any idea or and how did you come about with? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Thanks for that. Um, I, I wish I could say that I had something more scientific or methodical in, in selecting that, that threshold. We really were trying to target um, buildings that were undergoing a substantial enough renovation that they were essentially new buildings. Um, I do believe that there may be and probably should be additional policies to target sort of more run-of-the-mill renovations or upgrades in existing buildings, um, but we're trying to stay with sort of in the scope of a new buildings ordinance, so buildings that are es essentially new. Gotcha. And, and I would sort of echo my question with, you know, so for example, East Bay Mud has a trigger of $100,000 as the major renovation that would trigger 
a requirement for recertification of a sewer lateral, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a very easy number, you know, sort of from an enforcement or trigger point of view to say like, oh, it's over hundred thousand dollars. We have to do this versus 50% of a foundation. Is that like by volume or linear foot or, you, you know, like it, the, the interpretation questions will be hard without really strong definitions. Um, not that a money uh, measure is the easiest way either because a lot of those values are just stated by the applicant. So, you know, someone might say, well, it's a $99,500 uh, renovation versus, you know, $101,000 renovation. But I think that might be areas where, you know, obviously the, the building and planning departments are wise to what things actually cost. So, you know, if someone misstates it, it, it would be perhaps easier to figure out what, yes, this, this would trigger it. Um, but it, it would seem to me it would, it would be really uh, important. I, you know, uh, I, I think it's a, it, it's a great measure and I'm glad we're moving forward with it as a community, but it would be really important to also know what impact that is going to produce and make sure it's enough if that makes sense. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I'll just say, say we did just put out there that we, we also played around with some dollar thresholds and I've seen, we've seen other cities have dollar thresholds. Um, and we were thinking about, you know, as you were mentioning, it's pretty easy to put a $99,000 price tag on your, on your building permit. Um, so I, yeah, I think, you know, either way is not, not perfectly precise. This was the definition that, that we ended up working with the building official on that he felt like that would be um, a way that he could go forward. Um, and I think to your point about to about impact, I, I, you know, I, I, I actually, I don't know that we're going to capture a whole lot of buildings with this, with this ordinance. I, I don't anticipate that we will, but just starting to try to put the pieces in place. Um, there's there's a lot more that we need to, to go um, on this front. So just trying to start to take baby steps, starting with the easiest, which is new construction and working our way down to, you know, your water heater died last night and it's a gas and you want to put it in electric, but you don't have hot water, sort of like yeah, the trickiest problems. There's kind of a whole range there. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess one last question in regards to this. Uh, with AMP uh, and other rebates that are out there, whether it's Bay rent programs or stuff that's coming down the pipe uh, with Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act, how do the rebates play into this? You know, uh, as a homeowner, uh, could could are there still going to be incentives for the people to just do this voluntarily, even if they're not triggered by it? Um, you know, carrot and stick, so to speak, like I just. Yes, the rebates, sorry, <laughs> the rebates will absolutely still be a very important part. And, you know, that's really there to try to incentivize voluntary action. Um, and that's really the role that AMP is, is wanting to play with their rebates is to encourage people to take action that they, that they aren't required to do. Um, and we know that there is a lot more coming um, in the next year with the Inflation Reduction Act, 
the Tech Clean California, you know, I didn't, SGIP is in the self-generation program in California is another sort of aimed at, um, it's a lot of effort on water heaters. So that's another program on, on replacing water heaters. It's, um, it's very cost-effective right now and has a really big impact. Water heaters are usually the second use of, second highest use of natural gas in your home besides uh, furnaces. And, uh, and it's a pretty similar cost like for like to, to replace. So, um, but to your point, I think incentives are going to continue to play a really important role. Thank you. Okay, uh, other questions from board members? Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, board member Saxe. <laughs> Our new roles. Um, uh, thank you for the presentation. It, this seems like it's kind of following the lines of the California Energy Code. Um, you know, moving towards electric. And is the main difference the, the adding of the renovation trigger for um, going all electric? Yeah, excuse me. Um, so <laughs> losing my voice all of a sudden. Um, the energy code does, doesn't require all buildings to be all electric, but it is moving in that direction. And, and we're just trying to be a maybe a step or two ahead, excuse me. Yeah, I think if it doesn't require it, it requires you to put the uh, electrical infrastructure in place um, to be there for your future appliance, electrical appliance. But we're just, we're just stepping ahead of the California Energy Code. Um, and then the other question I had was concerning the, the energy, the electrical infrastructure. Um, is Alameda Municipal Power and uh, making improvements to the infrastructure to um, address issues of, you know, potential like uh, outages due to lack of power, uh, the storms, earthquakes, uh, fires. We've, we've seen a lot of issues with PG&E and fires and power issues. So are, are we also um, making improvements to the infrastructure to make sure that our all electric city uh, stays powered. Yes, thanks for that question. Um, we've had a lot of conversations with AMP about this issue, and AMP is well prepared for our future electric load. They are forecasting load um, and do not foresee any concerns with both the, you know, the future population that we're projecting and the future electric load. Um, so that's something they're, they're well prepared to handle. Um, and then to some of your other points, AMP has a very highly reliable and is, is really notable in its reliability of power. We have very few outages primarily from usually their you know, mylar balloons or other sort of un, unforeseen circumstances that are, get resolved very quickly. Um, you know, we're all familiar with power safety shutoffs, the PSPS outages, AMP is not um, immune to those, but PG&E is shifting the way it's thinking about those outages. And um, in general, we have seen far fewer across the state of those outages than we have in the past. And we also think that um, AMP is fairly well shielded if we were to be involved in a PSPS outage because AMP has two redundant power lines, both of which are able to um, provide the, the power needs for the entire island. So we would have to be in the very unlikely situation of both of our feeds being cut and they come from different directions. Um, and then 
you know, the third concern is maybe rotating power outages um, like we saw this summer because of high demand. And um, that is really a state issue and the state is working on adding um, additional generation and power supply and adding smart grid technology so that it can better balance its load. Um, and the state has also, um, its policy is that any particular location that is, that is called to participate in one of those rolling blackouts would not lose power for more than one to two hours. Um, and um, my understanding is that AMP is aware of customers that have special needs for medical and other um, situations and, and brownouts and, and really plans for that if they were to be called to, to participate in these, but they would be limited to one to two hours, um, just like some of us saw this summer. And then to your last point on, you know, disasters and earthquakes, while we're not in wildfire country and um, we are definitely subject to earthquakes and um, natural gas is responsible for fires in, I mean, electric and natural gas are both, but um, natural gas fires happen when older buildings that are not retrofitted um, collapse and break the um, break the gas connection at the foundation of the home, or often if gas appliances topple in the home, um, they start fires. And in Alameda, we're dense wood-framed homes. Um, there's potential for a lot of fire starts and for that fire to spread pretty quickly when the fire department is stretched thin. So I do think there's a safety component to this uh, goal of electrification. And then finally, we know that when the gas goes out in an earthquake, um, that it will take PG&E up to six months to restore that to your home. And part of that is because of all the repairs that need to happen to the gas pipelines. They also have to send people out to relight pilot lights in every home, and it's going to be like every home in the Bay Area. Um, so it can take up to six months, whereas for power, um, they can be restored very quickly. They can get temporary power lines, run new cables, and um, PG&E, when I was working in PG&E territory, you know, estimated they could have power back on to residents within a week. Um, so there's a big difference in the restoration um, after an earthquake between power and gas, in addition to the safety issues. Um, I have just one more question. Uh, yeah, I agree that recovery would be much quicker. I, uh, I had the opportunity to be up in paradise right after the campfire and PG&E crews were out there stringing new wires just days after the fire was, was put out. Um, the last question is regarding uh, electrical service to individual homes. Are there incentive programs or were there, is there a thought to have incentive programs to upgrade uh, service to individual homes? Because a lot of these appliances, you know, the heat pumps, it's a 50 amp uh, you know, circuit for the heat pump for a conditioning system. And so these are gonna be adding loads to what are probably mostly smaller existing services. Yes, um, so two things I wanna say about that. One is that um, there are ways to upgrade, to fully electrify an existing home on a standard 100 amp panel. Um, it requires you to be a little bit thoughtful and a little bit smart with how you, with what appliances you choose, make, you know, choosing um, fewer appliances. So like if you have a separate cooktop and a separate oven, um, you know, those each draw separate loads. Whereas if it's a combined unit, um, 
then it doesn't draw as much load. <coughs> Excuse me. And similar to like a washer dryer. <coughs> um, so there are ways that you can avoid panel upgrades. Excuse me one second. Um, in addition, AMP does offer currently, I think it's a $1,500 rebate for a panel upgrade when you also electrify one appliance. So that rebate oh, is already uh, out there and available. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act includes additional uh, rebates for panel upgrades. Yeah, it seems like that would be an important part of this. Thank you. Okay, uh, other questions from board members? Uh, go ahead, uh, board member Jones. I always have to ask because um, to be completely honest, it's more of an aesthetic thing, but I probably could find other arguments for, you know, safety and uh, other other things. But is there any plans to um, make the electric cables be underground or less visible? I have to admit, I'm not too familiar with AMP's undergrounding policies or plans. Okay. I can probably speak a little bit to that. Um, I, I understand that for new development, there is a requirement to uh, underground infrastructure and AMP, um, I believe does have a, uh, an undergrounding plan, um, but I can't speak to the specifics of it. But typically if there is new development coming in for an existing neighborhood, for example, um, there is develop, uh, a requirement for the developer to underground some of the existing poles immediately fronting the project. Yeah, I, I just don't know, you know, the the pros and cons necessarily. I mean, we talked about the mylar balloon scenario and trees and all that, but really, I mean, like all the cables that I see in these beautiful neighborhoods, it's like, gotta go, man. <laughs> it is. It is very expensive. I would say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I had a question, maybe I'll start with a question for uh, Alan so we can give Danielle a break. Uh, the, um, so with regards to equipment, uh, uh, Tom mentioned heat pumps. And so I think that one of the um, main things that you know requires if we go to all electric is we're going to heat pump systems. And those typically uh, reside outside of the homes instead of within. And so are there, any plans to update the zoning guidelines with regards to utilities and the setbacks? Um, and how will that impact uh, design review considerations? Because I know that that's on our small properties, that's one of the things that we contend with quite a bit is being able to locate that equipment on a small site where we have tight setbacks. Yeah, so generally mechanical equipment is not kind of a uh, does not fall under a definition of buildings or structures, so they're not regulated under the zoning code. Um, in the city's design guidelines, we typically encourage uh, mechanical units to be hidden, but we do know that you know you're in a city. Um, it's no different than having to install a utility meter, and the utility meter is typically going towards the front of the house. I mean, they're going to be visible. They're just part of kind of a, a part of life. Um, with the, with the heat pumps, um, it really depends on uh, what what they how the units are installed and where they're located. But generally, our zoning doesn't doesn't um, dictate where they 
necessarily have to go and there is not a design review process for them. Okay, thanks. And then I do have a couple of uh, questions for you, Danielle. The, the first one is with regards to um, sort of the savings uh, calculations that you were showing us, do those all rely on um, those homes having photovoltaic to offset the the cost of so for example for water heating my understanding is that water heating with an electric water heater is much more expensive in terms of the utility side than doing so with gas so if if you have uh, photovoltaics then that's not a problem but if you don't then the cost of that uh, energy goes up to the consumer so i'm just curious whether there's um whether that's taken into account and, and does the all electrification assume that we're all going to wind up implementing photovoltaics on our houses? Yeah, I believe in that study that it actually um, does not include adding pho photovoltaics um, and that um, because of AMP's very low electric rates that we are finding um, that we are more easily cost-effective um, without adding solar. However, adding solar certainly helps as well. Okay, so the uh, sort of the assumption is not that everybody's going to require photovoltaics, that it's encouraged, but that it's not required for us to go to all electric um, as a as a model. Yeah, and not for the exist not for the existing buildings, but new buildings are required to have, as you know, sure. solar. And then I did have one other one um, that maybe falls a bit under our purview. So, um, how would you handle on a so on a on a home that triggers um, electrification? That's a remodel. Let's say of a historic home, and you have an existing masonry fireplace. Um, would replacing the masonry fireplace with so a gas unit would no longer be allowed in that instance, and it would only be electric. Um, would be the the only uh, option. Yeah, I think that would be right if you if your fireplace is part of this remodel. Um, again, if it's outside of, you know, if you're doing a renovation of your downstairs basement and your um, fireplace is upstairs outside, then um, that would we currently don't have a prohibition against extending natural gas to new locations, although um, I do think that that may be something that would be coming. Um, mm -hmm. And so likely that would be the case um, going to not going to a gas insert, but to an electric insert in the fireplace. Okay. okay. Thanks. Okay. Um, do we have any other uh, questions for Danielle? Okay. Um, so I guess um, we'll see if we, do we have any public um do we have any public speakers? Yes, currently one person is raising their hand. First speaker okay. would be Ruth Abbey. Uh, please go ahead. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Ruth. Okay, thank you uh, very much, Chair uh, Sanchez and uh, members of the board. Um, I'm Ruth Abbey from Community Action for Sustainable Alameda. We were formed in 2008 to support the city's implementation of its climate action plans. And we've been strong advocates for building electrification. We supported the first ordinance and um, reach code and are very supportive of this next phase 
Um, soon, uh, the city may consider additional measures for de decarbonizing our existing buildings, and we're very supportive of getting uh, your input and in ensuring that these are shaped to be consistent with uh, the city of Alameda's current makeup. But we're very, very supportive that this is important for Alameda to move forward since we are an island in the bay, very vulnerable to sea level rise. We have to show leadership and do our, our part to um, reduce climate uh, impacts. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, do we have any other speakers? No one else is raising their hand at the time. Okay. Um, so why don't we go ahead and close the public comment portion and then do board members have any additional comments um, that they would like to share? Uh, yes, go ahead, Hank. I was muted again. <laughs> It's a question. So on this item, uh, is this something as uh, a body we're being asked to make an official comment on? If so, how do we, I mean, are we going to, do we vote on uh, something that we want you to go, you know, research or add to it? Or is it really just about the discussion? Um, it's a process question, I guess. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll let um, Alan correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it's it's more of an informational, uh, so it's it's intended for our for our information and then um, for our sort of feedback. Um, that um, yeah, to give our feedback from our from our perspective as a board. But uh, there is uh, there is no action. We're not taking a vote to approve the um, the ordinances. I believe that yeah. the or yeah, I believe that the ordinances are drafts that are going to uh, city council. And Alan, is that do I have that correct? That that is correct. So basically, we're giving this board an opportunity to uh, provide comments to staff or anything that you would like us to pass on to the city council for their consideration. So we're we're taking notes as you're as you're talking and providing suggestions. Got it. Well, then I would say my my suggestion or or my request would be that we have some uh, estimate of what impact this ordinance will have based on where our triggers have been defined, you know, and uh, really uh, basically have the discussion of is, is this enough? Uh, I think Danielle said we don't anticipate it's actually going to affect that many homes or that many uh, projects. Uh, so my question would be, well, if it's not that effective, you know, maybe we need to make it more effective you know, or is it worth doing in, in the way it's defined? And, you know, I'm I just would want to know well, what's the impact we estimate it will have if we're going to bother to do it. Uh, yeah, I think um, maybe from from my own personal experience, uh, Hank, I'll, I'll give you. So I'm a local architect and we work on both residential and commercial projects. And I would say that 50% of our active projects right now would be uh, would be forced to go all electric based on on the new guidelines um so i think that it will have a significant impact um and then i think overall what what we have seen sort of over time is that um so for example you know a couple of years a couple of code cycles ago we had to prep for car chargers now car chargers have to be installed and now people are demanding them so 
I think that this is maybe sort of step one towards um, a future where gas appliances are going to be phased out. So therefore, people are going to be electrifying their homes because they're not going to be able to purchase gas appliances. So I think that the change um, may take a while to gain momentum, but I think it, we're definitely headed in that direction. At least that's my personal opinion. Um, yeah. Um, one other thing that I, I think, um, you know, Danielle touched on briefly, but I, I think it's also kind of a really critical component of this, which is that um, AMP, because AMP provides 100% um, renewable energy, that's really where us as citizens of Alameda really benefit from this, is that the more we electrify, the more we're, we're sort of offsetting our carbon footprint, not just because of our individual impact on our own homes, but because we're then relying on cleaner generated power than than if we're relying on gas to heat our homes and things like that. So I think that's where the big bang for the buck comes. If I'm, again, Danielle, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's where we get a lot of uh, bang for the buck. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely echo all those sentiments. Um, I, I was just trying to say, are we are we going far enough? You know, is it? Yeah, it's it's a it's a foothold on this pathway, but you know, for decarbonization or are we also, should we also be thinking about ways in which to decarbonize the building process? You know, fly ash in the concrete, material choices, indoor air quality choices, makeup air quality choices, you know, heat loss, uh, recapture devices, all those kinds of, you know, green building measures, you know, might we think about layering those in? It's not just about, well, we have an electric heat pump you know, mini split or water heater, you know, there's more to it, right? Yeah. But I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that without sort of getting too far in the weeds, the, the green building code does go a long way towards taking us in that direction and sort of establishing minimum standards that are required of all projects, regardless of scope and size. So um, all of the projects that we do that require uh, compliance with the green building code have certain um, minimum standards that we have to meet with regards to insulation, energy use, et cetera. So we're, we're again, we're we're going in that path already for all of the construction that occurs regardless of size. Okay, um, any other comments? Uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, Sorry, this, is, this is more of a question that I just thought of because everything seems so you know, positive. It's like, who wouldn't want to go in this direction? But um, I, I was just imagining, you know, where would there be resistance, right? Like, um, I guess there's just sort of the, like, activation energy to go through the paperwork or find the right person to give you the rebate or get the education. So there's that. And then as far as um, electrification, um, has there been any pushback with like, uh, you know, the gas burners versus electric and also um, like fireplaces. Um, those are the two things they might not have as big of an impact as like furnaces, but I still have like, you know, parents of a certain generation that loves the flame in the kitchen or like, you know, um, gas fireplaces are, are seen to be, um, you know, less, 
um, you know, damaging than a real, you know, fireplace with like um, logs and stuff. So, um, sorry, this is more of a question, but just like came to mind as far as some of the challenges. Um, has that been addressed or has anyone? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question if it's okay. Um, we haven't heard too much about the, the fireplaces, so I, you know, understand where you're coming from with that and, and know that that is something that people enjoy and care about in their homes. Um, and gas, gas stoves are, I think, often a concern for people. And I think partly um, there's an unfamiliarity with the induction cooktops um, surfaces, which is the new technology. It's not, and sort of with all of these appliances, it's actually a new technology. It's sort of not, we may be familiar with um, an electric resistance technology um, for an electric dryer or a furnace or a water heater that is, is not as good as a heat pump technology, which is really highly efficient and, um, and really, you know, instantaneous. Um, and the induction cooktop, I think, is, is one of those where it's not the same. It looks like a glass, one of those glass electric cooktops, but it's very different. It uses magnets. It does like this instant um, heating. It's very efficient. Um, I, you can, um, actually, you can borrow um, induction cooktop burners from PG&E. They have a loaner program. And um, you like check it out for two weeks and it, they send it to your home in a package and they, with instructions. Um, and so I tried it. It boils like a pot of water in like two minutes. It's really, <laughs> really incredible. Um, but so I think that's, that's some of it is, and it's very accurate. Like you can tell it to keep your water at 150 degrees and it will, it just like maintains temperature. So I think, you know, some of it's just unfamiliarity. Um, and, you know, I think that, but I think we are kind of going in that direction. And um, particularly when we're talking about new buildings, like, you know, we're, we're just not installing gas fireplaces and we're not installing gas cooktops and, and, you know, people are, are finding those to be acceptable and, um, and, and enjoyable, but um, it does get, I think, a little bit more challenging as we go into, as we wade into the sort of remodeling and renovation of existing buildings. Yeah, so I guess like, um, like let's, let's say I have a historic home though. And so there is like a fireplace. Would I be required to just not use the fireplace or would I be allowed to put in a gas well, we current, I mean, we currently have no, we, we don't currently have any policy around um, changing out uh, around not, you are currently allowed to install a gas fireplace and that policy is not under like as part of this proposal um, will not change. Um, I do think that as we're going to all electric, like having gas fireplaces is probably not conducive to that in the long run, but you know, not what we're, not part of what we're discussing today. Um, however, there are also electric gas or electric fireplace inserts that have realistic looking flames and that give off heat. Um, so there really are, are alternatives for pretty much anything that um, uses gas today. That's great. Yeah, that's the one thing I can, I, I know, I'm familiar with the induction stovetops for sure but yeah so you know 
there are people who like enjoy the flame. So it's mm-hmm. wonder who has thought of what and what's the latest technology. It always gets better and better. So um, anyway, I was just thinking about historical homes and how the population of people living in these kinds of homes, like how they would, you know, <clears throat> get to the next level, next stage of like um, just meeting up to the technology while, you know, maintaining the character, whatever it is in the house that mm-hmm. they look at. So thank you. Yeah, I think um, I'll just add one one little note to that, Lynn, because it's a really good question. So I think that um, like if we think about LED lighting and that technology, um, not too long ago, it was prohibitively expensive and the choices were really, really limited. Um, but when that became a sort of a direction that the building code was forcing us into because of the higher efficiency, we began getting a lot more choice and the market has sort of leveled out. So now there are really good choices that aren't prohibitively expensive um, that provide a huge energy savings over a normal incandescent bulb. So I think that likewise, the fireplace, right now there's few options out there, but I think that we're going to see a huge swing in that direction because of these requirements. So I think state of California has always been that way about the way they write the codes is they generate the problem and then the manufacturers go out and fix it. So yeah, there might be a shortage of nice looking fireplaces for a little while, but I think we're, we'll get them eventually. Okay. Um, do we have any other questions from the board? Okay, well, thank you very much for your presentation and we appreciate your time. Thanks. Okay, Um, so moving on to item 7C. Uh, So this is update on the draft for the housing element, uh, 2023 through 2031. Uh, The Historical Advisory Board has received an update on the status of the draft housing element and drafting draft zoning amendments to address state fair housing law and to accommodate regional housing needs allocation for the 2023 through 2031 planning period. And I believe uh, Alan has a presentation for us. Yeah, just really an oral report. Um, So uh, Chair Sanchez, member of the board, this is really the fourth opportunity this year that we are touching on the um, draft housing element update. And um, for the uh, new board members, I'll just quickly explain what a housing element is and, and why we're uh, why it's important for us to talk about it. So under California law, every um, city or local government in California has to have a general plan. And the general plan really is the uh, sets the blueprint for future development growth of the city um, in the future. Um, as part of the general plan, um, the California law requires a city to also have a housing plan, and that is one of the seven required elements of a general plan. Um, the, the housing elements are, are updated by cycles, and so currently all 101 cities in the San Francisco Bay Area are also working on their um, housing element. And the planning period for the housing um plan really is 2023, the next eight years to 2031. And as part of housing law, um, there's an emphasis on each city um, planning for its fair share of housing. 
really what that means is, um, you know, there's projections for population growth and demand for housing and for the region and every city um, has its own share. Alameda's share of that, uh, what's called a regional housing allocation or the acronym RENA is 5,353 units over the next, next eight years. Um, and state law over the recent years have been increasingly um, stringent about making sure cities do their part in having a housing plan that facilitates the opportunity. I mean, one, one key point to note is that cities don't build housing. The city of Alameda does not go out there and build housing. Um, um, so what the, really the onus is on the city to um, set up a regulatory environment, set up our zoning rules, set up uh, policies and programs in, in, in place so that developers and home builders can come in and do so um, without too much barrier. And so um, since the last time we've spoken to the HAB about the housing element, we've also um, uh, given you an opportunity to talk about design. Um, I know uh, there, I think in one of the workshops, uh, the community feedback was that, okay, if we, uh, by, by changing the zoning rules to allow more housing, um, you're basically allowing larger buildings, more buildings in existing neighborhoods, that's ultimately gonna affect neighborhood character. And the staff response to that was yes, um, but where the rubber meets the road is really often architecture and in the design. And so um, we, we, the board has had an opportunity also to comment on the city's design standards. Um, since, and that was early in the summer, I believe in June. And um, after that, the city had submitted its draft of the housing element as well as um, our programs. And one of which includes changing the zoning rules in the city to provide more opportunities um, to, to build housing basically anywhere in Alameda. We've submitted that to the state of California for review as required by the state law. Uh, um, the Department of Housing Community Development at the state had then um, provided staff uh, with their comments, which we also responded to. And then um, towards the end of August, uh, the state issued the city of Alameda a letter that says, hey, your draft housing element is in compliance with state law. If your city council, if the city proceeds to adopt the housing element and implement its programs, you will be certified. And under state law, um, all 101 cities in the San Francisco Bay Area has to have a compliant housing element by January 31st, 2023. So what happens if you don't have a compliant housing element? Well, there are severe consequences. Um, and in the, in the uh, exhibit to the staff report, um, I shared, uh, staff shared a article um, from, the city, from the city of Santa Monica in Southern California. Southern California was on an earlier review cycle. And um, unfortunately that city did not have a compliant housing element by the deadline. And uh, what happened was this concept of builder's remedy. And so basically uh, under state law, if you don't have a certified housing or compliant housing element by the deadline, uh, developers can impose builder's remedy. Basically the city's general plan and zoning are no longer valid. Developers can come in, ignore your zoning rules and build housing. And so in Santa Monica, 
you know, they're having to deal with developers coming in with over 4,000 units of housing, 15 story uh, buildings, uh, basically a loss of local control. And I, you know, as a professional city planner for the Alameda, we do not want to see this for the community. Um, knowing that the state has said that if we adopt our housing plan um, that was created over the past two years of over 25 public meetings, um, we will be certified. Staff is, gonna, staff is actually recommending the city council adopt the housing element and the programs um, uh, November 15th. So um, there are other consequences that I'll just quickly um, go over. I mean, that includes a loss of state funny, funding, um, which, which support you know, a lot of city functions, um, infrastructure improvements, um, park improvements. I mean, there's a lot of money that, um, that the city would lose. And then also just not to, uh, not to forget that you know, the city will be sued, right? And we could be sued by the state um, the state attorney, uh, the, the attorney general's office would go after cities that are not following the housing laws. And of course, with litigation, there's, there is cost. So in a nutshell, I mean, this is really just the, the report out on the status. Um, we, uh, the, the, the planning board has had an opportunity to review and comment on the uh, final draft of the housing element. They recommended the city council ap approval, and we're currently scheduled to have the city council um, uh, adopt the housing element or consider adoption of the housing element um, November 15th. So that concludes my um, quick summary and I'm available for any questions you may have. Uh, thank you. Um, are there any board member questions? Uh, Tom, Saxby? Um, so I had a question about the, um, my understanding is that the city of Alameda is one of the only cities in the Bay Area that has a compliant housing element. Is that correct? That that is true. Uh, so I believe got... Emeryville uh, just last week got their letter saying if they if, if they adopt the housing element, they will be certified. So um, so I... this, the other cities are, are are pushing back a little bit against what the state is asking us to do, or what's what's happening? What's causing this uh, these problems? Uh, you know, just talking. Uh, so within Alameda County, there's a planning directors roundtable that uh, you know that planners are part of. What we hear is um, some cities have a difficult time uh, identifying sites that would be suitable, or you know, just for a variety for a variety of issues, um, community pushback, um, you know. But I think for the most part, uh, one key issue is. Um, being able to demonstrate that they could comply with the fair housing requirement. So one of the newer um, laws in, in the state is uh, what's called uh, the affirmatively furthering fair housing requirement. And, and um, its emphasis is to for cities to include in their plan corrective actions for you know, any sort of uh, past redlining um, and uh, creating new housing opportunity that's equitable and, and widely distributed in the cities. And some um, actually when, when HCD, the Housing Community Development Department of the state reviewed our draft, they, they had questioned also our program and, and whether it's going far enough um, in, in furthering fair housing. And, and we had to spend some time to demonstrate to the, to the state that our, our um, 
program met that requirement. But most, uh, you know, I think a lot, there are a number of reasons why other cities aren't meeting, aren't, aren't, meet, aren't meeting state law, but um, I think we are in a good position, um, you know, thanks to a lot of the uh, public input and, and uh, the work of the, the planning board, as well as um, this board um, over the past two years to get us to this point. Um, another question, and then I'll step down. Um, so the, the, the Santa Monica experienced this, this builder's remedy um, penalty, I guess you would call it, um, because they had a non-compliant housing element. Um, what's, what's the process for the city to get, I mean, once their, their element is approved and certified, that builder's remedy uh, opening just goes away? How, how does that play out in, um, in real time? Yeah, I think builder builder's remedy is is something that I believe that develop a building uh, a, a home builder would have to invoke. So come February first, let's just say for whatever reason our city council does not certify or adopt our housing element, and um, a, a home builder could come to our permit counter February first and say, hey, as of this date under California law, the city of Alameda does not have a compliant housing element. Um, I am applying for uh, building permits to build, uh, you know, how many units on on this property, and and um, they they can legally do that. And when would they stop being able to do that and have the Alameda zoning code uh, be in effect? When when the city is able to demonstrate that its housing element complies with state law, and typically uh, the 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 agency that makes the determination is the state. Um, housing community development department and what's the what's the uh, review period expected to be um, for you know say say we're not in compliance on February 1st and we submit a revision on February 15th how long would be we be vulnerable to these uh, let's open zoning um, I will have to go back and, and look at the actual timelines but um, the standard housing uh, element review periods are like I believe at least 90 days for review. Um, I, I mean, it's months. an extensive turnaround, but I would think that, you know, for cities that are um, out of compliance, uh, I mean, if, if we're at that point, I, you know, I would be calling HCD right away to get them to review our housing element. Yeah. So I, there would be a period of time where we might be vulnerable, but it wouldn't be very long. Yeah. I would, I would just say it out loud and clear that, that is not an option for the city. And, and as, as your professional planners, we, we will not want that to happen. We'll sure. do everything to, no. to avoid that outcome for the city because no, it is gonna be so damaging um, to have developers come in and just start building without, I mean, you know, they can go, you know, the, the Harbor Bay Club, for example, um, I, you know, that, that's, a, that's not a site that's planned, currently planned for housing. I mean, I understand there's a lot of controversy over that, but, you know, if come February 1st, we don't have a compliant housing element, the property owner could come in with building permits for housing right away. Okay, thank you. Other questions? Uh, yes, why don't we uh, go ahead with um, board member Hernandez. Uh, Alan, uh, please could you remind me? So I, I believe the arena number is like 5,200 or something around there. 5,353. 
um, and then the the actual uh, draft right now is more than that. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's Why correct. That? And that's because um, under the uh, HCD guidelines for housing elements, they recommend a fifteen to thirty percent buffer, because you know the city can lay out its plans, but you know we don't because we don't build housing. It's up to private property owners and developers. So they recommend a buffer. And I think currently our buffer is averaging about 25%, 20 to 25% um, over the 53, 53 number. But that's because they recommended we do that. Not... Right, right. And and in reality, I mean, I'll just, uh, let's let's just look at the numbers. Over the last, I'd say five years, uh, the city of Alameda, we've averaged only 200 units a year of housing production. And of course, our previous Reno was you know, around 1,800 only. So for us to meet a goal of 5,353 units, we probably need to average 600 units a year. And, and only, um, we, I think, if I recall, accurately, we maybe only had that for two years because of major projects like Alameda Marina, where one building is 300 units. You know, we're, I mean, over the next eight years to meet our arena, we will need to have two Alameda Marina phase one buildings every year to be able to meet that target. I, I mean, honestly, we, it's unprecedented in the city. I, I, I worry that we're not going to reach that goal. Particularly, um, member, the economy starting to, um, you know, turn downward. Okay. Uh, board member Borthwick, did you have a question? I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Um, sure. And I'm coming. I know I'm uh, coming into this late since this is my first meeting, and so I kind of just have a clarification question, and it's kind of very uh, detail oriented. Um, so this is this is for staff. Um, I'm. Reading within the amendment and the general provisions and exceptions, I'm seeing that there are exceptions for historical structures. And I'm seeing that as kind of allowing leeway for projects at historical structures to meet SOI standards. Um, my question is, if there are buildings or structures that are built after 1942, but our list are, you know, the owner wants to list them in the California or National Register, um, and they want to do a project that meets SOI standards, would they be precluded from using these exceptions because they're built after 1942 and the definition of historical structures limits, limit it, is limited to before 1942? Yeah, so um, let me just clarify a couple things. So um, for purposes of allowing homeowners um, to benefit from using the state historic building code, we define in our zoning code uh, historic structures as anything built before 1942. So I think that's really where the, the context of uh, where that applies. And, and, um, and of course, you know, um, for, for buildings that were built before 42, um, you know, application of the Secretary of Interior standards um, are generally applied, but we also in Alameda have our local design guidelines and, and we, we tend to rely on those first. So does that answer 
your question. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Ellen, doesn't also uh, the pre-1942 uh, also involves sort of our board, right? And so if, yes. if somebody is proposing um, a project that entails demolition of more than 30% of, of the structure, then it triggers um, an HAB hearing. So it that, comes under correct. our review. That is correct. And, and I think, um, Chair Sanchez, that uh, just to follow up, I, a very important point is I think, you know, um, often folks in the community who, who kind of misunderstand the city's approach on housing is thinking that, oh, with the reckless upzoning, city planners are setting it up so that our neighborhoods could be destroyed and build, historic buildings demolished. Well, let's not forget there is a preservation ordinance and the Alameda Preservation Ordinance is heavy on demolition control. I mean, I think it was originally written as a demolition control ordinance. So um, Chair Sanchez, you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if, if a property owner wanted to take advantage of uh, the city's proposed housing element zoning changes to create more housing units on their property, and they want to alter the existing building to the extent where it triggers the demolition um, threshold, it would come before this board. And this board would have an opportunity to say, you know, to, to say no, or you may um, get them to change your project and whatnot. So um, it's, it's not true that, auto, you know, the adoption of the housing element would automatically lead to the destruction of, of older historic homes. That's not true. And then, uh, sorry, Lynn, I'm going to follow up on, on a question on that one. So if, um, so conversely, uh, going back to um, board member Saxby's question, so if we were, I understand it's not our goal, but if we were to fall out of compliance, then not only could a developer come in and ask for, um, to build a project that would otherwise be limited by zoning, um, couldn't they also uh, sort of, sidestep the requirement to come before HAB if, if that were if we were out of compliance? Uh, no, because the, the preservation ordinance is not a zoning tool. It's it's actually a preservation tool. It lives outside okay. of chapter 30, our, our zoning ordinance. So okay. I believe um so that would I believe those be right the demolition control still stands um, okay. as well as uh, California environmental law, which includes preservation aspects. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Other questions? Uh, yes, Board Member Jones. Um, I might have asked this before, but I think I'm having trouble understanding. Like, um, so at this point in time, we are to prove that we have the capacity to reach these arena numbers. But these these um, housing, um, the new housing hasn't been built yet, and so in eight years, like, you know, how do we show that proof that it's possible versus do we have to back it up in eight years and, and actually sh account for the houses? Um, because eight years is, you know, both kind of a short and long time, you know? Right. Um, and you mentioned, you know, there's economic, um, I don't wanna say- Economic variables. Yeah, there's a lot of variables that we can't account for. So does the state um, sort of give us some leeway in that? You know, um, is there sort of like, I guess there's the buffer zone, you know, we 
we're trying to go to 25%, do we get some uh, extra stars or points for, you know, um, going above 15% in the buffer zone area? Like, um, how, how strict are they as far as, you know, us being able to meet the numbers? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question, Board Member Jones. Um, the state legislature has made it very clear they 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 are very serious. I mean, the the housing crisis in California. Um, I mean, I think we're uh, I've heard like we're almost like nearly a million housing units short of the statewide demand, and really this is all housing that should have been built over the past eight years, and it ha and it hasn't. Um, in terms of like accountability, I think that your question is more about accountability. Um, every year, the city has to submit to the state what's called an um, annual review. It's a, it's a, a annual housing element progress report. Um, the progress report um, basically reports out on how many housing units the city of Alameda has approved, how many building permits have we actually issued, um, and then also, you know, the breakdown of income affordability and all of that. So um, it is it is tracked. And no, we don't get extra credit for having a buffer because that is that is kind of a requirement. Um, uh, it, it is a best practice and, and a guideline in, in the in the uh, in the HCD um, housing element guidelines. Um, and then come year four is sort of a, the mid mark, and um, the year four annual report is actually pretty significant because that is when the city does a kind of a major re-evaluation you know, evaluation of the uh, housing element that we adopt this year and to see um, whether you know we are successful or not. Um, if, if we are, uh, if for some reason um, staff is wrong in our projections and we build too much housing, then I think there's an opportunity to have a conversation about whether whether we really have gone too far in the in the zoning and housing element and starting to dial back. But I, I doubt we're going to be in that situation. In fact, you know, come year four, it might that I, you know, you're you're correct about the uh, economic variables. I think people are also wondering if if the if the state legislature would let loose, you know, their foot on the pe gas pedal to give um, cities a little bit of slack, um, if you will, um, because of the economy. But um, in Alameda, I think the the demand for housing is still very strong, and that's that's driven by the fact that um, we have very strong um, life science um, employers um, and jobs that basically. Um, um, you know, a, a, a attract, uh, and these are good paying jobs and, and attracting people to Alameda who, who demand housing, so. Um, follow question. So, um, so that's good because it's not like in eight years, you just either know or you don't know. There's, you know, systems in place okay. where you know if you're on track, that makes sense. Um, the, the penalties of, um, not meeting numbers. Does that happen at the end of year eight or could we incur the penalties like even in the first year of review or? the I would say the, the first day, um, like I said, the deadline to have a compliant housing element is January 31st, 2023. So that's in like less than 90 days, right? We have to have a compliant housing element. And then the following day, developers could come in, which I mean, which is what happened in Santa Monica. 
developer showed up at their permit center. Here's my application for a building permit for, you know, 15 story high rise tower. And there's nothing, you know, the city could really do about it. So are we other than work harder to get their housing element in compliance? It sounds like from um, the letters to, I guess, Andrew Thomas, it seems like we are on track so far as we know. From the state, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that was uh, that was um, a pleasant surprise for staff after a couple of years of hard work to to really be one of the first cities in in the Bay Area to to have a compliant to have the state tell us that our housing element and programs comply if we adopt them. I mean, that's that's just a reflection of everybody's hard work up to this point. That's awesome. Are you worried though that? the accountability part is in danger because of our, our historical track record as far as how many big actual development projects happen. You mentioned like, you know, we might have like one or two, we need like one or two huge 200 unit thing buildings a year. <laughs> I mean. Okay, yeah. Okay, so board members, I, I think there was another aspect to your question that I probably have missed. So I guess your question is really, if we don't hit our arena target, are there penalties, right? So um, there, yes. um, not immediate. I mean, not it's not as um, not the same as if you don't have a compliant housing element. But you know, state law does um, grant. Uh, housing development projects, a more streamlined approval process when cities aren't meeting their arena. And I'll tell you that I don't think there's any city in California that's completely meeting their arena goal because the arena isn't just the number, but it's also the different categories of affordability um, that you would have to meet. And, and um, I don't think there's any city that is hitting, hitting that mark. Um, and so therefore the uh, housing developers are, are getting those extra benefits that's um, prescribed in state law. Uh, are there other questions for staff from the board? Uh, yes, go ahead, uh, board member Hernandez. Sorry to ask so many questions. It's because I'm new. Um, so uh, I, I was really interested in what you were saying about at the four-year mark, there's actually a formal review for us to evaluate, well, where are we? Are we ahead? Are we behind? Do we have to accelerate? Can we change course a little bit? Um, as, as far as the, the, the moment the element becomes approved, you know, before January 31st, of course, that'll happen. All is right. Um, but then for whatever reason the city decides something needs to change is that four-year mark our first opportunity to make a change or could we make changes at any point along the way and if we do make a change how and where would we get that change recertified you know to maintain our compliance because you know every policy will be flawed to begin with period and we're only gonna know what the unintended consequences are after it's in place. And of course, we'll all wanna go back and say, well, it needs to change. Can you speak to that process? Yeah, thank you, Board Member Fernandez. That's another excellent question. So um, um, interesting, I don't know that uh, cities are actually going to do that where they 
come up with a compliant housing element and then immediately turn around uh, and unwind everything. But, you know, the, the state legislature, um, I would give them credit for being clever about that. Um, there is this concept of a no net lost uh, rule where if a city has already created that housing opportunity through a zoning, so let's just say we've zoned a site and, and it, it allows for X number of units. If after uh, we adopt the housing element and we go back and change the zoning, state law requires the city to make up for it, for, uh, to offset that loss. So the concept, no, that's where the concept of no net loss comes in. Um, you can't just say, I'll, 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 Commit to zoning, all you know, creating opportunities for all these all these units, and then and then change it without any consequence. State law does require, and within a very specific uh, amount of time, that you you rezone another site, and it, it might happen. You know, you might you might have a um, there might be a compelling reason for for the city to rezone a site for some other use, but then um, you do have to make up for it in another way within a uh, uh, specified amount of time. So we, we do have the potential to do it as long as it's within the constraints of what we've essentially already said we were committing to. So I, I guess I would, I would then ask the other question is since we have a buffer, right, of a little bit extra in the plan, is that wise? You know, is it, would it be wiser to be more conservative with our total number knowing that we could add later? Uh, I would as say- we, as, You know what I mean? Like at the four-year mark, so we're not making it, let's add more now because we can versus, oh, we've already committed to more, but we can never take that back, right? If I'm understanding. Yeah, I, I would say staff is already being um, pretty conservative. I mean, the, the majority of the arena units are based on projects that we have in the pipeline meaning these are applications, developments that are on file. The West Midway project that we um, talked about tonight is, is part of that. You know, that project is upwards over 700 units. Um, no, and I'm sorry, not, um, um, <laughs> sorry, sometimes these numbers skip my head. Uh, yeah, yeah, 700, 700 plus units. So, I mean, a, a big, big piece of the arena and, you know, um, your, your board member, your other question was about whether we have to recertify. No, there's just, once you have a certified housing element, it's certified. But if you do anything to then um, dial back the opportunity, then state law requires you to make up for it. And the, your, and your annual reports will, will have to document that. Um, thank you. Do we have other questions? Okay, um, so I'm sure we have public speakers waiting. Um, yes, uh, Christopher Buckley will be our first speaker. Okay, please go ahead. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. We, we sent you a lot of correspondence. I'll try to be as brief as possible. We share staff's concerns regarding the builder's remedy, which caught us and many other cities, as you've heard, off guard. We're still trying to get up to speed with it, and we hope to compare notes with staff once we're up to speed. Uh, to, just to clarify the timing, though, if the city council decides to make some changes to the housing element, our understanding is there'd be a 60-day review period from HCD. 
So if the council did that soon after January 15th, um, HCD would get back to us uh, mid to late January, which is really cutting it close for January 31st. But uh, that's an issue which uh, you know, we'd like to, one of the issues we'd like to clarify with staff, just one of many moving parts here. We continue to be very concerned about the impact of the housing element on historic properties. We are concerned the massive upzonings will result in replacement of existing historic buildings uh, and intrusive new, new construction in historic neighborhoods and business districts. And many of these, the most problematic ones, are not necessary to meet the arena, and we believe not necessary to meet fair housing. It's true that the Historic Preservation Ordinance offers significant protection, but it's not as ironclad as zoning. With zoning, it discourages developers from even considering such projects. Now we'd be getting into a lot of project review using Historic Preservation Ordinance. We're especially concerned about the effects of the state density bonus law, which would allow building heights to significantly increase above the already significantly increased heights, like 60 feet on Park Street. You could end up with 80 feet, 90 feet maybe with density bonus projects, also other waivers. Um, I've got that we have a number of specific recommendations which we had in our September 10th letter, which we provided to you. I'm not gonna go over these now because there's not time, but I would like to show some images. Others. So the first image here is a screen share showing the transit overlay, which would allow unlimited density with 1000 square foot units with height limits of 40 feet over a vast section of Alameda, including some of its most historic neighborhoods. You put a density bonus project on top of that, you could end up with this, with, there's 40 feet here, you can end up with a 60 foot building by surrounded by houses with 20 and 30 foot building heights. Uh, next image, please. Um, well, let's see, I didn't include that one. Uh, there's another image with some photographs of buildings. There you go. This is an example of a project in Oakland where a 45 foot height limit, they use a state density bonus law to get 78 feet, adding three stories to this building. Uh, next image, please. This is a project in Berkeley where there's a 50 foot height limit lower than the 60 feet being proposed. And they were getting able to get that one up to uh, 80, I believe it's 87 feet, an additional two stories. So these things can happen and they're happening all over the Bay Area and they could happen in Alameda with this upzoning, including in our historic areas. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do we have another speaker? Currently, no one's raising their hand at the time. Okay. Uh, why don't we give just a minute in case we have anybody else? No takers? Negative. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so I'll open it up then to comments from the board. Uh, do we have, um, we have comments from the board? Board member Saxby, please go ahead. Uh, I, I guess I'm gonna kind of echo some of my concerns or some of Chris Buckley's concerns that I share you know, I'm concerned about the potential severe negative impacts that some of these changes will have on our neighborhoods. Um, I think the transit overlay is just far too extensive a policy for, for Alameda. If we need a transit overlay, we should really limit it to just the frontage of the, the bus routes that we're using as our transit corridor. 
and not let it extend a quarter mile into our neighborhoods. Um, you know, we have a policy where we're allowing up to four units within existing building shells, along with unlimited ADUs, I understand. And I think that's gonna more than make up for the, the difference in uh, potential housing units that would be created by the overlay. And I just think I just, the potential for, for just really disrupting our, our, our neighborhoods is, is far too great to risk a transit overlay policy that's as extensive as is shown on the map that was presented. Um, I, I also think that the uh, increased density R3 to R6 zones um, is just going to encourage the bonus uh, density bonus policies and encourage demolition in our neighborhoods. Uh, not good for Alameda. I don't think any, but I don't think Alameda residents want it. I think it's really being forced on us, and we should push back. Um, again, the uh, allowing of additional units, four units within existing buildings, and, and unlimited ADUs within our existing buildings um, offsets the increase in housing. Um, I'm concerned about the height limits in the historic districts. Um, I think we should really be looking at keeping those to 40 feet and in keeping with some of the heights of our historic, historic buildings. I think uh, increasing the density in those areas also is risky for um, dentist, bon density bonus provisions. Um, and then while we're making all these changes, we have uh, this review system, which is changing from discretional to ministerial. And I'm afraid that a lot of these sorts of impacts are just going to be uh, approved, rubber stamped without any kind of uh, review. And I'm very concerned about that. So, you know, I would like this board to sort of step up for preservation and, and recommend to city council that they take a harder look at a few of these more extreme policies that are being proposed and, uh, you know, ask for a change. We have time, we should make a change. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, would anybody else like to comment? Uh, yes, Board Member Jones. Well, I just want to uh, show support as far as um, uh, the comments made. I, I completely agree and just thank you for the Alameda um, Architectural Preservation Society for just doing the hard work that you do. Um, it just, uh, the city wouldn't be the same without your commitment and volunteering and your time and expertise. And so um, it's, yeah, I just wanted to um, appreciate you and your organization, um, Mr. Buckley. And, um, you know, um, the numbers are very abstract as well, but I think that there's like a quality as far as you know, sort of the low hanging fruit and the areas that make sense and our city feels comfortable, you know, um, developing. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there's some sort of way that we can sort of prioritize um, the areas that um, really make sense and everyone feels more comfortable developing first. I don't know if that's something that we can add to um, our policy and also just to highlight um, you know, the areas that we really need to um, be more, um, you know, uh, detailed with as far as, you know, because I think 
what we're saying is that overarching policies don't take into account um, the very specific nature of the already kind of rich populated neighborhoods that are um, uh, developed and have a longer history. And so um, perhaps we need to make clear that these are sort of the areas that we want to, um, you know, really take street by street and have um, uh, more detailed policies as far as that. Um, those are my comments. Uh, thank you. Uh, anybody else uh, with comments? I guess, um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Board Member Hernandez. Thank you. Um, uh, I would just echo again my compliment to Mr. Buckley on his uh, obvious uh, huge amount of invested time in this, uh, and uh, it's, it's much appreciated. Uh, oh, I would disclose also, I believe now is an appropriate time that I was able to speak with him today on the phone uh, to clarify some of um, the things that he wrote in his letter. Uh, I would um, I would also echo uh, the idea that if, um, if we can easily imagine that there will be impacts on all this development on the historic homes, either through things like teardowns or major remodels that would, you know, severely alter them, or just in relationship, you know, like in our current list of historic structures, we we list some buildings as historically significant because they're a set, part of a set of buildings, and uh, by uh, messing with the fabric of that that uh, setting that those are in by, you know, and I think of this movie, I don't know if you've seen it by uh, Pixar called Up. And it's about a fellow who lives in this little building and it's beautiful. Uh, and then all of a sudden around him is, you know, uh, a gigantic cityscape. You know, I, I don't think that's necessarily gonna happen in Alameda. It's more of an Emeryville thing because it's Pixar, but, um, uh, you know, that that comes to mind where we don't want to lose this unique character. I think in the same way that folks are worried about the character destruction that we saw in the 70s with some of the apartment buildings that were, you know, infused in the neighborhood. So um, as by whatever mechanism, I guess this is a question for staff and, and for you as the chair, how do we or how should we express those concerns? Is that something, again, that we would vote on and say officially to the council, hey, consider these things, or it's our position that, and we make a recommendation, or you know, how, how do we do that? Yeah, so I can address that. I mean, so um, this is, again, just a workshop. We are taking, I mean, this is, the, you're an advisory board to the city council, so. If you have comments, um, I mean, given that the uh, council meeting to consider housing element is November 15th and the staff report has already been written. So any comments you would have would be just transmitted orally by staff. I mean, I, I, one thing I would want to say um, to board member Jones's um, question, I think that was a question earlier about whether we can take a look at our neighborhoods again and delineate the areas that we, what I'm hearing is that you would like to preserve because of its character and not put housing opportunity there. And 
move the housing new housing opportunity elsewhere in the city, I think that is exactly the issue that the uh, affirmatively fair housing law is trying to address. That um, you know those areas are historically what's called the high resource areas. Typically, you know, have better access to schools, better access to community services, commercial spaces. Um, you know, uh, um, uh, generally more affluent areas. And the state is really pushing cities to distribute these new housing opportunities into those areas. Um, historically, if you look at Alameda, the large amount of new housing and affordable housing is all on the West End. Um, the HCD comments to staff uh, picked up specifically on that issue. What are you doing, City of Alameda, um, to distribute housing on the east side of Alameda, particularly, you know, basically pointing out the Fernside neighborhood, for example. Um, and so therefore our zoning, uh, recommended zoning amendments are intended to create housing opportunity in all of the R districts. That's in direct response to the affirmatively furthering fair housing law. So to go back and say, or recommend the city council, let's start excluding certain neighborhoods or certain areas of the city. Uh, I mean, as your professional staff, I believe is directly contrary to state law. And I believe that could jeopardize um, our, our position to get a certified housing element. Um, Alan, yeah, I thought about that. Is it okay if I comment or talk about that? Because um, as far as, you know, because I think the whole idea is to provide, you know, some, you know, equitable housing. We need to serve all these different populations, increasing populations, you know, um, uh, it, you know, there's like seniors, there's, um, you know, um, small families, you know, low income, people of color, like I, there's all these different uh, people that need housing and want to live in Alameda. So I understand that. I don't think I'm saying, and I don't think this is how you're interpreting it, but that, oh, let's just um, put all the housing opportunities on the West End. Like, I feel like Alameda is such a small area and, you know, maybe historically like 20 years ago there was definitely like this blue collar white collar situation but you know my kid goes to preschool on the west end and i live on the east end so i'm constantly going back and forth and the west end is to me thriving i mean there's all these cool restaurants happening we just talked about that um the new development at the point you know there's the ferry terminal so i i you know, I know this is subjective, but I, I don't see that disparity necessarily. I guess what I'm saying is that um, it's not a like, let's just put all the, you know, um, uh, the affordable housing on the West End. It's not that. And, and, and I would argue that um, ADUs um, and the ability to do that in residential areas is, in fact, affordable because they're smaller units. So people don't necessarily charge more rent. You know, these are um, perfect places for multi-generational families um, so that people don't have to move out, out of Alameda. I think that we need to not just, um, I think we need to be more specific in how we address um, what sort of housing and 
you know, what's available in these communities. I'm not saying that the West End is the only area that needs to feel the sense of development and all the things that happen with construction and things like that. But I think every area has its pros and cons and like a, ability to have a certain type of housing. And, um, you know, the so, some of the images that we saw, um, you know, it's a 60, 80 foot building doesn't make sense in a very, you know, where Alameda was first kind of populated, you know, with Park Street and and um, even Webster and all the, you know, the map that showed the where the transit lines go. It's it 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 just would be a shame to have that sort of um, I don't know, like it it just would be so impactful in our in the nature of our the city. I don't know. I think that's what people have said better before this comment right now, but hopefully that that all sort of made sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the impression that many people have. But, you know, if you look at kind of the facts, the the uh, affirmatively fairing, fair housing um, issue, for example, the state has published maps. Um, they try to make this an objective exercise, and 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 their maps do identify where what's a high resource area and it's defined, and what's uh, you know kind of a lower resource area. And our high resource areas in Alameda are typically the Gold Coast residential neighborhoods on the on the east end. And so we we base our analysis, and it's in the housing draft housing element document. You can. Um, go to that appendix to take a look there. Um, in terms of building heights, you know, currently the um, Park Street District height limit is 60 feet. I mean, that already is the case. So, um, and in some of the uh, height increases in the residential districts, you know, we're really just going one story up from 35 to 40. So it's not, it's not like a scenario where where the current zoning is two stories and we're allowing a six story building. I mean, that that also is not true. So um, I think, you know, the if you look at the details, I think staff's approach um, while in the zoning, um, we, we are uh, we are making changes that are pretty widespread that affects every neighborhood, but that is what the state law calls for, but we are doing it methodically and, you know, um, ADUs was an example you brought up, Port Member Jones. You know, we are making changes in the zoning that would make it a little bit easier for um, for a homeowner to build ADUs. And this is based on our experience with the ADU program in the last few years, identifying issues that homeowners often run into when they're designing an ADU. And we're, we're literally trying to break down those barriers. And so... Um, from that staff's perspective, you know, we did spend two years of, you know, care, very carefully identifying what the zoning rules need to change, and we're making those changes. It, it is not reckless at, at all, as some people are, are couching this as. Uh, board Member Saxby. I would just like to say that um, where we are upzoning the density in the, the R districts, we are increasing the, the possibility of density bonus changes to the zoning. And we are gonna exceed, potentially exceed the height limits that you're talking about. And so we're just, we're just creating a scenario where developers can do what they want more easily and build higher in our, in our low rise neighborhoods. And I think we need to 
be much more precise as Lynn was saying with defining where that can happen. And we're just encouraging it throughout Alameda. We're not saying where it can happen, just say it can happen anywhere. But as I was saying before, I think by allowing multiple units in existing dwellings and allowing unlimited ADUs, we are providing a, a pathway for additional housing within our neighborhoods that won't have as severe an impact as what the transit overlay, the density increases are potentially uh, doing to our neighborhoods. And I, I think really the, the council needs to hear that, that members of this board, maybe not 100%, but a few members of this board think that some of these zoning provisions are are severe and um, will have negative impacts. Um, yeah, so uh, Alan, maybe we could, um, you could speak to us for a second about the transit overlay in particular, because I know that that's one that continues to come up. And and so to uh, board member Saxby's point, um, that is that is the case, right? I mean, because I think that the concern that AAPAS raises constantly, as well as um, uh, board member Saxby and his comments, is that it's not it's not that the upzoning is allowing um, for the for the increase in height on its own, but rather that that in combination with the density bonus has the potential to increase the height beyond the the 40 feet that you were mentioning so is that could you kind of address that a little bit as to how um how that plays into the housing element and what that sort of means in practical terms yeah so um let's talk a little bit about density bonus i mean density bonus law i think originated in california probably in the late 70s and it was really and it's evolved over time to to its current uh, version um, current iteration and really its whole purpose is to um, help remove um, barriers in development in, in the zoning regulations for developers who are building affordable housing. It's to make it easier for a developer. It's it's kind of an incentive for a developer to build affordable housing. So I, I've heard this argument about density bonus and so the suggestions almost reverse engineer the state law for density bonus in order to avoid somebody from taking advantage of it. But I feel like what's missing from that conversation is, well, they're doing it because it's affordable housing. And it comes back to a question about, well, do you, do you want affordable housing or not? If you want affordable housing, state law says cities must, must offer these incentives, these waivers for affordable housing. So I think you know, for those of you who believe that, oh, we should, we should reverse engineer our zoning so to avoid someone from taking advantage of density bonus, I think you would kind of have to ask, like, are you also supporting affordable housing or not? I mean, I mean, the, the whole purpose of the housing plan is to increase the supply of housing so that the, you know, the Alamedans and, you know, future generations have access to more affordable housing. I think that's, that's very key and is, is really the, the core value here in, in that discussion. Well, providing multiple units in existing housing is also affordable housing. It's a different way of doing it. Yes, absolutely. It's a less but, impactful way of doing it. And, and from staff's perspective that, you know, we, 
for the staff who worked in the permit center, we review applications. We know, we know how housing comes and, you know, the different forms of housing that get built. Um, you know, what, what we're trying to do, as I mentioned, is we're trying to remove the barriers to create ample opportunity for housing. You know, the, the scenario where somebody cars up their own house into four units, that might not work for everybody. And I think the other thing to point out is um, there's often reference to developers in the neighborhoods. We're really, I mean, staff spoke is, and, and from our experience, it's not the developers like Catellus who's going to come into an R3 neighborhood to, to build a duplex. You know, these are going to be homeowners, the folks that board member Hernandez works with, and maybe, you know, for Chair Sanchez and, and you, um, uh, board member Sanchez, you know, your clients, these are homeowners in Alameda who might want to, uh, you know, build a unit in the back that might not be an ADU, but, you know, they might want just want rental housing to, for more income to supplement, you know, supplement their income. I mean, it's just creating what I call backyard infill. This strategy that staff has is really about backyard infill. Um, I'll leave it at that. So, um, sorry, I'm going to ask another question in that vein, just to, to clarify. So let's, let's say hypothetically, there was a vacant lot in an R1 zone and somebody was proposing a fourplex um, that was going to be four flats, right? One on top of the other. If they wanted to apply the density bonus, then if they made one of those units affordable, they could potentially add a fifth story to, to increase that number to a fifth flat. Is that sort of a fair example? Um. Not exactly in the R1 because there's also a SB9. I mean, the, the, the housing, the state housing rules have, have created kind of a very complicated universe. But I would say that just on the general question about if somebody were to come in and if they were to qualify for a density bonus, could they take advantage of a density bonus? The answer is yes. Okay. And then if... Um... But that sorry. would also mean, um, sorry to interrupt there, uh, Not a problem. Chair Sanchez, but, you know, they would have to qualify for a density bonus. The units have to be inclusion. They have to be affordable, deed restricted for uh, 55 years, um, you know, sure. assign a housing agreement with the city. I mean, all, all of that comes along with it. So there are guarantees that um, sure. know, you have affordable yeah. units. Yeah, yeah, no, and uh, I completely understand. And then uh, I'm just trying to sort of put it into real world examples I can understand. Um, so I think the other the other uh, question that I had for you, um, because we talk a lot about ADUs and I see them as a huge part of the solution. Um, the Do you guys have a sense of how many ADU permits were approved uh, in 2022, roughly? Um, last year, I believe, the number was in the 70s. This year uh, is a significant drop. Maybe we may be at 45. Henry, would you know? I think yeah, it's about 50, but there's 50. a very interesting uh, split between number of permits issued and number of buildings actually built. Right. There are more permits being approved versus what's actually happening. Um, okay. And then in terms of uh, qualification for market rate or affordable housing, is there sort of a sense of what percentage of those actually fall under one of those categories? Um, for ADUs, 
uh, we don't have an inclusionary requirement, like an affordability requirement. So mm -hmm. this is just more of um, affordability by design. So even mm -hmm. though in Alameda, the, the largest ADU you can build is 1,200 square feet, um, the average, I would say, is uh, 600 square feet or less. I mean, people and and the and and the folks that are building ADUs aren't developers. These are regular property owners who who might need extra space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So so is the is the thought that the sort of the average size of 600 square feet then um, nets what would be considered in our in our city as market as sort of below market rate or affordable. Or is it sort of on a case by case basis? Yeah, I don't know that there's a direct correlation. I mean, you know. so as far so maybe a better way to ask the question, Alan. Sorry, is it is it if you were talking about the arena numbers and sort of the percentages of affordable housing, how does how does HCD view ADUs as towards our goal of a certain percentage of affordable housing do those get included or cl classified yeah in ADUs, any way? adus generally would count but um okay. without a specific like a deed restriction then they're not i don't think they're counted towards the deeper levels of affordability okay thank you that was that was what i was after um sorry i i interrupted you hank did you have did you want to well, add to that i was just going to say like this is a very interesting question you bring up because if you would ask a multi-unit developer what's an affordable unit cost, they're going right. to tell you it's something like five hundred thousand dollars a bit a pop. You know, like oh, I can build you an affordable unit. It's going to cost you half a million dollars. Right. If you ask an ADU builder, hey, what's an ADU cost? It's like, well, I can build you an affordable unit for a couple of hundred thousand dollars freestanding. If it's carving out a piece of an existing structure, it's maybe a hundred, like really nice one. So the affordability actual dollars not state definitions of those kinds of units is much better value proposition than having a multi-unit developer come and build you you know a five-story building of which two of those flats are you know market rate and the other you know what i mean like it's for sure it's yeah it's, but we don't get credit for that Right. It's just arena number, like it's a it's a one arena, you know, because we built one ADU, right? And most of these aren't being built, as Alan said, by developers. However, right. there are huge numbers of corporate home buyers, and I don't know how much you guys follow this, but huge numbers of corporate home buyers that are hoovering up houses, and then locking in rental rates in controlling markets and. I don't think that's going on in a place like Alameda because our base price is so high. You know, we're not that, we're not the right, you know, kind of uh, community for that kind of developer activity, but it's not inconceivable that uh, someone who knew how to do the math could say, oh, that's a 5,000 square foot lot in an R1 and there's how much space left? Okay, let's buy it. Let's SB9 split it and boom, you're there. You, you know, it, that's the incentive. And even at Alameda prices, that math still works. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. I appreciate the, the thanks for the comments. That's helpful. Um, yeah. Sure, Sanchez, um, speaking of SB9, I do want to let the board know that since the law was uh, put in place at the beginning of the year, Alameda has not seen one SB9 application. So, um, 
yeah, there's just not, and, and throughout the Bay Area, there just hasn't been um, too many applications for SB9 as well. Um, for even large cities, I think for San Francisco, um, they, they did not have too many, maybe like 60. And then I think the, the last uh, question I had for you, Alan, was would you, would you be able to expand a little bit? I mean, it, it sounds like um, Mr. Buckley's um, comments indicate that he he feels that the math doesn't doesn't quite match the projections that are that are going into the housing element. Um, I'm sorry, it might not be a fair question to ask of you, but is it possible for you to kind of give us maybe some uh, some areas and some of the the places where you guys have tried to incorporate the feedback that you've gotten from not just AAPS, but also from the community at large to try to sort of balance out the requirements, you know, the, the pull of HCD and, and what they're um, sort of asking of you and then what the citizens of Alameda and, and AAPS um, have, have asked you to take into account in terms of the housing element? Yeah, I mean, um, that's a that's a loaded question there. Sorry. Um, I, I think um, no, that's okay. I think the staff's priority really was in this exercise is, I mean, how do we overcome the challenge of planning for five thousand three hundred fifty three units? I think, I think, and having to make sure that those opportunities are distributed equitably across the city. So, um, I mean, that was not an easy task. I mean, it, it really took staff a long time, you know, over, over, like I said, 25 plus public hearings with the planning board, this board, um, other community meetings to, to, to really just try to get everybody to understand sort of the the challenge of this task um and plus the fact that you know our hands are actually tied in many areas there's a lot of it is state law and to understand the consequences of not being able to um to complete the task is really severe for the city um you know we i think originally in in our in our um i mean we and we have took taken the the public comments seriously including mr buckley's comments you know um originally uh i remember we had a workshop with this board to talk about webster street height and park street height we ended up in the zoning um requiring stepping back the upper stories um on on sort of the the central portion of webster street Um, i know in within the zoning amendments um some of the language might be confusing because at the same time while we're updating the zoning element we're deleting language, but also it's also a cleanup exercise for us. So while you might think that the city has deleted this provision, well, we've actually just moved it or, or eliminated it redundancy. So, um, I mean, it, it is a 130 page plus document, but um, it, you know, if, if you're able to go through it with a fine tooth comb, you will hopefully understand that, you know, staff's approach is, is actually fairly methodical. Um, and um, of the, and I want to say that, you know, a lot of focus and criticism of staff has been on the zoning changes to the residential units. Well, I mean, that really is um, 10% of the arena. I mean, we're not, we're not 
um, from our projections, what we expect, you know, the majority, like I said, are uh, the major development projects like the West Midway project by large developers. Those are already um, what we call pipeline projects. Um, you know, shopping centers, you know, these are shopping center uh, sites are also accounting for um, a, a large portion of units and then really just 10% of the units um, in the residential neighborhoods. And again, part of the reason is we understand that the, the folks building those units in, in our existing neighborhoods aren't major developers. They're, they're homeowners like many of you out there. And um, you're gonna be um, subject to ebbs and flows of the economy. So, um, you know, sure. we might be talking a lot about, you know, just how the zoning may impact our neighborhoods. I mean, I, I'm going to bet that that's, that might not happen. We might not see a whole lot of change. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Well, thank you. I appreciate you uh, being game for uh, tackling that one. Um, Chair Sanchez, um, I noticed we're coming up on 10 o'clock. Um, so if we want to continue the meeting, the board should um, take a vote to go beyond 10 o'clock. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I don't think we need uh, too much more time, but um, could we, um, do we have a motion to continue the meeting uh, past 10 o'clock? Motion to continue the meeting past 10 o'clock. Can I get a second? I'll second it. Thank you. Um, okay, thanks. Can we put Henry. a time limit on that? Can we say 10, 15? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I was just going to say that uh, perhaps... Do we do a roll call vote, Henry? For Zoom meetings, I think we need to do a roll call vote. Oh, sure. Okay, Thank I'll you. do a roll Thank call. You. Um, board member um, Borthwick? Yes. Uh, Hernandez? Yes. Jones. Sorry, yes. Uh, Sanchez. Yes. And Saxby. Aye. Okay. Um, so I was going to suggest, so what you're looking for from us uh, as a board tonight, Ellen, if, as I understand it, is basically uh, comments and feedback that we would then uh, request that you bring to your, um, to the city council. Uh, to sort of convey our our sort of um, feedback to you based on where we stand uh, with regards to the housing element. Is that, do I have that right? Um, actually, we've done that in the previous workshops and that was really just an update and um, okay. we're asking you to just accept the staff report and, and you know, hopefully this discussion was beneficial, but if you would like staff to pass on any comments to the council, we may do that as well. Um, but um, I think the council reports for November 15th were already due, so we would just pass oral comments um, at, at the night of the meeting. Okay, and are we able to submit, I mean, I, I would imagine that all of us can submit written comments as well, uh, independently as well as, can we do so as, as um, members of the board, or would we do that as, as sort of private uh, residents of Alameda? Either or, absolutely. I was just going to say, um, you you can also write and submit a comment letter um, to the city council with okay. your own personal views, as well as attending potentially Correct. as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so does that does that answer your question, Hank? Because you had you had alluded to that earlier, asking sort of what our you know what uh, input we could have at this stage. Um, does that resolve yes. your question? Yes. Thank you. Uh, process okay yeah absolutely no i'm I, I think we're all sort of trudging through it together um and 
Thomas, does that does that also um, sort of address? Because uh, I think that what you were what you were asking was that we sort of all voice our um, you know where we're in agreement and where we think that the housing element maybe is exceeding um, in certain instances the, the the necessity to meet the arena numbers. Uh, would that be a sort of an acceptable solution to you that we could submit comments and also attend the the council meeting to voice our our opinion there as well. Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking that you know it'd be nice to have the board have more of a, a uniform voice on some of these issues that the the council could hear more clearly, um, and maybe that can be done by a letter that's shared among the the board members and if people who agree with the issues that are being presented, maybe they can sign on to it, and if they don't, they don't have to. Yeah, I was just um, going to ask that, Alan. Is that is that uh, we wouldn't be um, overstepping our sort of uh, quorum requirements um, if we if we presented it that way, or would it need to come independently? I think it would have to come independently unless this board tonight can um, formulate a, a letter. Um, otherwise, there would be a, a I think there's a Brown Act issue if the, the quorum yeah. of the board decides to write a letter offline. I mean, that that decision would need to be made um, here tonight. Okay, fair enough. So maybe, um, but in any case, it doesn't preclude us from independently um, meeting uh, or writing our comments down and, and sending them um, as independent board members, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I would encourage you to do that. I mean, I think tonight we've heard, um, you know, from most of you, very good comments and questions. And, you know, I think these are um, important issues for council to consider. So um, okay. I would encourage you to to send send in a letter uh yeah excellent I, I just feel like at this at this late hour and if we're trying to keep it to under 15 minutes it's going to be difficult for us to get all our all our cogent points down but um it's good to know that we have uh, that we can still uh, do so if we if we'd like okay um before we adjourn are there would anybody else like to make a comment um well there's several more board items before we adjourn Sorry, on this particular item. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think uh, just in in my uh, I'd like to thank uh, Henry Allen and staff in general because I know that you have been at this for an incredibly long time. So I hope that um, you know our our few hesitations don't um, don't belittle your efforts because we greatly appreciate it. So thank you. Um, okay, any other comments on this item before we proceed? Okay, um, so we'll move on then to item 7D, which is our um, meeting calendar for 2023. Yeah, so, have... so really no no staff presentation here, pretty administrative um, um, item. It's just the calendar for uh, for the next calendar year. Okay, um, and do we need to vote to approve that? Yes. Okay, is there, um, are you able to share a slide with us that shows those dates easily? If not, we can, I, I think we all have it. Yes, we can bring that up. Uh, okay. Henry, would you have been have that handy? Otherwise I could pull it up. I think okay, I have I, it. I got it. I, actually, I have it. There we go. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Um, yeah, so I guess we need a motion to approve the calendar. 
Do I have a motion to approve the calendar for 2023? To approve the calendar for 2023 meeting schedule. Can I get a second? I'll second it. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, okay, so it's been moved and seconded. Um, do we need a roll call vote? Yes. Okay, uh, go for it, Henry. Okay. Um, board member Borthwaite? Yes. Hernandez? Yes. Jones? Aye. Uh, Sanchez? Yes. And Saxby? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Okay, so we'll move right along to number eight, uh, board communications. Are there any communications from the board on anything we haven't yet touched on? No, okay, we'll move right along. Any staff communications? Uh, no staff communications. Uh, sorry, uh, Vice Chair, Vice sorry, Chair Jones, have, did you have I a... have just said it, maybe we said it before the meeting, but just a formal um, hello and so happy to have our new board members join us. And, you know, um, it, we're not in person, but just hope you feel welcome and you have our emails. And so if you ever want to grab a cup of coffee, but not three of us, because that would be, <laughs> but um, just so happy to uh, have you. I second that. Thank you. We Thank jumped you. into a difficult meeting. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> welcome. They're not always this much fun. I promise. Staff um, would echo those comments. Thank you. And welcome to the board. Yeah, no, we're better, we're better for having you. So thanks so much. Um, great. Um, staff, you said no staff communications, Alan? Okay. Um, oral communications, is that um, from callers? Is that correct? Do I have that right? That's the public. Public, like, yeah. yeah. Do we have any, any speakers waiting for us? Uh, currently, there's no one raising their hands. Okay, thank you. So in that case, um, and in terms of adjourning, do we need to call for a, a vote or can we just say we adjourn? We adjourn. You can All adjourn. Right. Thank you so much for sticking it out. Um, Thank and you. Welcome, everybody. And thanks again for your, your time and your efforts, guys. I appreciate it. Good job, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for running the meeting. You're welcome. Have a good night. Take care, Bye everybody. Bye.